is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 25, 2020. I speak to you from high above 16th and Broadway in the Springer and Steinberg studio, right above all the action. I can look out my window above that badge that is in plexiglass. What does it say? Oh, yeah, Deputy DA, 81 to 85, Chief Deputy, 85 to 96. I look past my badge. They don't let me carry it in my wallet anymore. And there's the city and county building in Green Mountain right behind it. I can see a little piece of the police building where I worked as well, 13th and Cherokee. After you are experienced as a district court deputy, they have you screen complaints and talk with detectives, interact with police, and then you graduate and become a chief deputy and go on a homicide duty and you interact with police at major crime scenes. I never saw Randy Corcoran or any of the people who held that back the blue rally at any of those scenes. I'm not aware of any of them being police officers. And I've looked at the situation from the side of your average Denver police officer, detective, captain, whatever. What kind of people throw a party for you that you really don't want? It's not the right time or the place. There's a pandemic going on. It's a party where you could get hurt. And too many police have gotten hurt. And if there was going to be a confrontation, then there was a good chance people would be hurt and those people would be police. I followed that story with interest and I reached out to Michelle Malkin. She was there. I watched her Twitter feed. I was concerned about her health. I wrote to her and her husband, and they said, sure, I'll come on, Craig. But I wasn't just going to ask about Sunday. I've been following Michelle Malkin, and I've been disappointed that she's taken a turn toward Nick Fuentes and the Proud Boys and V-Dare. And she likes to be referred to as Mother Groiper. And when I watched that Twitter feed, At the end of it, sort of like a gang member, she threw her colors, her gang sign. This is for the Groypers. Shout out to the Groypers. Shout out to America First, a phrase with some dastardly history going back to World War II. When a bunch of Jew haters like that phrase, people who would have surrendered to Adolf Hitler, watch the HBO series Plot Against America, one of my favorites. And you might say, wow, predictable Craig. He just doesn't like Jew haters, you think? I'll tell you, Michelle Malkin and I get into it, and you will hear that within the first hour of this show. But I got along great with all my other guests, Dr. Mark Johnson, Executive Director, Jeffco Health. Man, what a smart dude. And he spoke candidly to me. See if I don't have some skills getting an apolitical person to jump into a necessary discussion about our president. 
and the way he's handled this COVID emergency. So many people on Denver Trump radio never want to talk about Trump and impeachment, never want to talk about Trump and his manifest screw-ups on COVID. Instead, they attack Colorado's first Jewish governor, Jared Polis. And it's stupid. And Dr. Mark Johnson will tell you what he thinks of the performance of Trump and Polis. And he's apolitical. I have a Republican on, in fact, several. Former U.S. Congressman John Labutlier. What a smart dude he is. He had his own show on Fox News for over five years. He talks to me candidly about Trump and sending these troops to American cities, secret police, and on Denver Trump radio, do you hear an objection raised? No, bring them. Are you kidding me? Donald Trump policing the streets of Denver? No, thank you. John LeBoutlier weighs in in very strong terms. My troubadour, Dave Gunders, really puts on a performance this week, verbally, musically. His hit song, Deep Down, gets in your head and you can't let it go. And it's the theme of the week. I ask Dr. Johnson, deep down, are people considerate or are they selfish bastards? Who would celebrate being a selfish bastard right now? You know who. The Donald Trumps of the world. The Trumpians. Samantha Cook joined me. She followed me on Twitter, Craig S. Colorado, C-R-A-I-G-S Colorado. And there was a new follower. And I looked at her profile. I think it said conservative, mother of three. And I followed her back. And I liked some interesting things she tweeted. She was a big follower of Michelle Malkin. And it looked like she had been at the so-called Back the Blue rally. So I got in touch, and she's a great guest. Samantha Cook, delightful, Denverite. Michael Bailey, of course, what can I say? One of the founding sponsors of my show, and this week a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. But the first guest was a woman I got to meet when I was a prosecutor. Summer of Violence, 1993. A shot rang out, July 23, 1993. It was the wee hours of the morning. Tom Holler and Christina Holler had watched the Rockies beat the Cardinals, 4-3 to three, as I recall. Then they went to Rock Island before they got back to the Santa Marie Apartments where Tom parked his Honda and he and his beautiful wife of a year, Christina Holler, got out to go upstairs. Two gang members stopped that. They wanted the beautiful woman. Tom resisted, got shot dead on that sidewalk across from the Capitol Hill King Supers. Christina went missing, and thanks to Denver police officers who found her, rescued her, Denver paramedics who brought her back to life, Denver detectives who put the case together, and then a Denver jury that convicted the perpetrators. Dr. Nedra Downing watched it all. Tom Holler was her son. She's good enough to be my first guest this week. I give you Dr. Nedra Downing. I wanted to talk to you, Nedra, today, and you were gracious enough to agree on July 23rd at such a meaningful date. Tell everybody why. 27 years ago today, my son was murdered in Denver by two black men, and it's a day I won't forget. We were going to come to Denver, but didn't because of the coronavirus. 
because I still like to put flowers on his grave <clears throat> and remember the place where he bled to death on the sidewalk. Right near the Capitol Hill King Supers on Corona Street. I've been there at many memorials, not as much as the mother of the late Tom Holler. What a great guy he was. I never knew him, but boy, was he making a positive impact on Denver, Colorado. He and his beautiful young bride, Christina Holler, Tom and Christina, they seemed to have it all. They went that night to a Rockies-Cardinals game. It was so long ago that they were playing in Mile High Stadium. They went to Rock Island where they had a fashion show for Jimmy Jimmy, their clothing company. Then they came home and two gang members saw an opportunity, a beautiful woman carjacking. Tom tried to save his wife and probably did in a way, but got shot dead right on the sidewalk. And so many people on Capitol Hill heard that shot. And I handled it as a prosecutor and people want to talk to me about it still. They knew Tom Holler. They knew the case. It was on court TV. That's how you and I met. I'll shut up and ask you what you remember about the court case and all of that. Well, the court case was amazing. I kept staring at these two men. I couldn't believe that these two men could have done what they really did. But they they were hard, glaring individuals. And I'm sure their black mothers loved them and wanted better for them. But the black mothers can't do it alone. They need the black fathers to help them. So Craig Silverman did a, an outstanding job of digging up details of how this happened and put the details together with evidence that the perpetrators, the two black men, left behind, which incriminated them. And so it's a very sad day, and it's sad not only because my son has been dead for 27 years, but the lost lives of two potentially productive individuals, the two murderers who are still in Canyon City, I guess, for life. Yes, the Colorado Department of Corrections. They got sentenced to life plus 200 years, as I recall. Uh, yeah, without chance of parole. And in right. fact, that may be worse than the death penalty. Right. But you never know because there's a lot of prison reform, as you all know. Everybody's talking about violence in major cities. There's been an uptick in Denver. The horror that happened to Tom and Christina and you, a, a wonderful doctor in Michigan, your son out here living in Denver, we worry about that being repeated now. And the streets of major cities are getting progressively more dangerous, and some advocate bringing in federal troops. Before we go there, you've given me way too much credit. I had Denver Police Department on my side. Dan Wyckoff, Dave Neal, lead detectives on that case, homicide, sex assault detectives, they put it all together in such beautiful fashion. All I had to do was put on the case. You know I love the police, and I wonder what your attitude is. I sure don't love the cops who put, well, Derek Chauvin, who put his knee on George Floyd. But I was shocked that the three other officers just watched. They should have stopped that 
Let's not denigrate the police right now. Let's talk about what a great job they did in the case involving your son's tragic murder. We absolutely need the police. It's unthinkable and totally irresponsible to not want the help of the police and to support the police. 25 years ago, I asked a Denver policeman why they patrolled the Five Points neighborhood in Denver so much. And he said, well, we go where the crime is. If the crime's in a white neighborhood, we go to a white neighborhood. If it's up in Five Points, we go to Five Points. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Only appropriate we have some sirens in the background right now. In the heart of Denver, Dr. Nedra Downing had a horrible experience in Denver, but she keeps coming back. And we have these memorials when COVID is not raging. A lot of things have been canceled this year, but not the Back the Blue rally. In any event, let's move on to Michelle Malkin, who is part of that Back the Blue rally. And Michelle Malkin and I both experienced some consequential changes last November of 2019. For Michelle, it started when she heard Kimberly Guilfoyle and Donald Trump Jr. and Charlie Kirk on stage at UCLA get shouted down by some groipers. Who are Groypers? G-R-O-Y-P-E-R-S. Well, I didn't know either, but you can look it up. It's a group led by Nick Fuentes, who was there in Charlottesville, not on the Antifa side, on the Nazi side. And he deserves it. This guy is viciously anti-Semitic, is a Holocaust denier, likes to make cookie oven jokes that are aimed at Ben Shapiro who's not enough of a Nazi for this guy, Nick Fuentes. They disrupted this event for Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, peppering them with ridiculous questions to the point that Donald Trump Jr. got mad. But boy, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who I know pretty darn well from our cable TV days, she reacted even more strongly. It's because people hijack it with nonsense looking to go for some sort of soundbite. You have people spreading nonsense, spreading hate to try to take over that room. No, it's it's because you're not making your parents proud by being rude and disruptive and discourteous. We are happy to answer a question. So three days later, Michelle Malkin spoke to UCLA students as well. 
And she took sides in that dispute between the Groypers and Charlie Kirk and Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle. And she did it like this. Just a couple of days ago here on this very campus, someone I know, a former Fox News colleague, Kimberly Guilfoyle, sneered that young conservatives, men in MAGA hats, asking inconvenient questions were somehow rude losers. And then she went on to defend Nick Fuentes' vicious attacks against Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, who wears a yarmulke because he is an Orthodox Jew. I've met Ben Shapiro. He's talented. He's way out there on the right, but not right enough for the neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes, leader of the Groypers. And it's amazing when Malkin takes the Groypers, Nick Fuentes side of the debate. Somebody I've known a long time, and you all know him, Ben Shapiro, who unfortunately repeatedly denigrated, let's be civil, uh, repeatedly denigrated, so I can finish my sentence here, (laughs) repeatedly denigrated an entire movement of young men who watch, yes, a YouTuber named Nick Fuentes. Well, Michelle Malkin did not get the microphone ripped away from her that day, but she pretty much said right there and then that she was sick of the Young America's Foundation, for whom she had been a speaker for 20 years. They were not conservative enough. I think she got mad over them wanting some educated immigrants over here in America. But for whatever reason, Malkin made her declaration on November 14, 2019, as follows. America First detractors indignantly demand that we young and old sovereignty advocates disavow, disavow, disavow. Well, the conservative thinkers now have their knives out for me, and they always do. So there it was. Michelle Malkin got fired the next day from the Young America's Foundation. A day after that, she was in Denver on a Saturday, November 16, to be a featured speaker for Salem, Colorado, an event in Aurora, not far from where she lives in Colorado Springs. Earlier in the day, I had my microphone taken away for talking badly about Donald Trump and having a producer named Kirk Woodland, who it turned out was a neo-Nazi, who doctored my podcast, told lies about me afterwards, with the willing aid and assistance of my former colleagues at 710KUS. I downloaded those podcasts, waited many months, over six months to listen, but I've listened now. It's beautiful what you can listen to online and with some perspective. Michelle Malkin, November 14, made her stand. November 16, a consequential day for me. And no, I did not want to celebrate Michelle Malkin anymore after she threw down with Nick Fuentes and the Groypers and the Proud Boys and V-Dare. This Nick Fuentes likes to show off his switchblade, act like a tough guy, pull up that Google of him confronting Ben Shapiro on the streets of a convention. When Ben has his wife and little kids with him, it was sickening. But Fuentes, who was put down by Ben Shapiro in a speech at Stanford, telling the students there that you don't have to be bigoted. You don't have to say, we're not going to let in 
black people because they vote a certain way or Asians because they do this or that. Judge people individually, but Nick Fuentes and apparently Michelle Malkin ridicules that notion. Listen to Nick Fuentes talk about Ben Shapiro. <sighs> Bro, I'm, I'm smarter. Hispanics I'm smarter than you are. Sorry, I'm smarter than you are. I'm better than you are. You know, what, what does Jacob Sartorius say? Well, he actually says something about the opposite. He says, uh, what is it? Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. It's actually the opposite. I'm just more hardworking and more talented than Ben Shapiro. One way, because, because race is not the basis for voting. Ethnicity is not the basis for voting. Okay. Culture may be the basis for voting, but ethnicity. <laughs> Tell that not. to the Race blacks that voted Again, 97% for Barack factor. Obama. Culture is a different thing. That affects how people think. But none of this is about reality. Okay, so we have step one, and that is you masquerade as a MAGA Nick. And then we have step two. MAGA and Nick? You claim that you're the Nick? people. And then we have step three, which is to troll, right? You just show up at places like this, and you say dumb things. Then you tell your friends how cool you are. And you tell <laughs> edgy jokes about the Holocaust and cookies because, I mean... What what could be funnier than that, obviously? <laughs> I love how he's just seething about it. Yeah. Try to come up with a funny joke, faggot. And and then then you like to make edgy jokes because that's cool. <laughs> yeah, try getting it out, faggot. I mean, that's just good stuff. That's just and good finally, stuff. Yeah, it this is, is a big one. You count funnier on the left than you to help you out. Sorry for the language, folks, but you need to understand just how vile this guy is. But he built up a big YouTube following before he got kicked off there. He's back on Twitter with quite a following, as is Michelle Malkin, who retweets this guy all the time. They have a huge social media presence, and it's on the far right. So many lines were drawn at Charlottesville. Fuentes was there with his gripers. Malkin was here in Denver last Sunday, back the blue. And she did a live tweet of it happening to her, and it was dramatic. Fortunately, she really did not get hurt badly herself. She got silly string in her face. She witnessed crimes. It had to be terrifying. But then she escaped toward the library, and her car was quite a, a distance away. Pat Neville was with her. Security from a gun shop that Pat Neville had brought along was there. She had lost her shoe. Some person driving on 14th decided to stop and pick them up. And it turned out to be Groypers. And boy, was Michelle Malkin tickled. Listen to this. Our Twitter live feed ended. Thank you, America First Kid. Yeah. Rescued by a Groyper. Yeah. I'm still live streaming with silly string all over my phone. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Good. God bless you, Mama. You're a griper mom. Of course, we're in the griper mobile. If you go straight ahead into that parking, there's a parking garage in the Capitol. Okay. Yeah, well, that show of force didn't work. That show of force didn't work. Interesting the way she put it. Pat Neville was giving directions to the parking garage. Without further ado, let me bring you Michelle Malkin and her discussion with me about what's going on. Hello? Hello, Michelle. It's Craig. How are you? Good. How are you, Craig? I'm wonderful. Thanks a lot for doing this. Okay, um, I'm getting a lot of shit for doing it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Who are you getting shit from? Eh, you know. 
Okay. Um, tell everybody about our relationship in the past. To, to the extent we had one, it's not like we've hung out, but I've had you on my show in the past. I remember meeting you in Aurora. I don't know what you've heard or think about me, but you can tell us. You know, I've, I've always uh, had, you know, fine encounters with you, and I appreciated that you came out to the event. I don't know if you even remember what it was, uh, but I was doing a, a tour for a, a investigative show uh, that I had done for a couple of years, and the cause of championing the police, good police, has been one of mine, you know, projects for as long as I've uh, had my career. And the Aurora event, if I recall correctly, was a, the the screening of a piece I did on false allegations against an Oklahoma City police officer, Daniel Holtzclaw. And I believe that you came to that screening. Yes. I really appreciated it. Uh, I, I think it was super cold. Um, and, uh, you know, I was worried about turnout. And it, I was just really, really grateful for everyone that came. So I, I think we were one of those people. So I appreciated that. Well, I do remember that. It was in Aurora at the Fox Theater, as I recall. And I got to meet your husband and your kids. You live in Colorado Springs. I went to Colorado College. But I think we have a shared affinity for criminal justice stories, and we'd like them to turn out correctly. On this podcast this week, I have Dr. Nedra Downing. You and I are taping on July 23rd. 27 years ago, her beautiful son, Tom Holler, was shot dead on Corona Street right outside the Capitol Hill King Supers. That was during our summer of violence. You probably heard about that. I was a prosecutor then, and I did that for 16 years, working hand in glove with the Denver Police Department. A lot of respect for those uh, officers. So that brings us to last Sunday when you were at a Back the Blue event. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, uh, so my friend Randy Corcoran asked if I could uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, speaking on stage. Uh, it was a busy Sunday for me, um, but I made my time out of my day to drive up from Colorado Springs to Denver uh, because, like I said, I've always backed the blue, and I've done these types of rallies uh, over the course of 25 years. Um, did one of them at the White House under the Obama years after the cops in Dallas had been massacred, and uh, I did not feel that they were being properly honored. So um, so I drove up, and, uh, you know, you can watch the whole 36-minute live stream uh, that I shot. And at the beginning, it was like most of these kinds of events, um, reuniting with a, a lot of grassroots folks that I hadn't seen in a while, um, certainly because of the whole COVID situation. Uh, and then, um, you know, meeting a lot of new people, taking pictures, uh, glad-handing, um, just a really nice time. And it was a family-friendly event like these things have been in the past. This was the sixth annual Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Uh, but as the organizers have noted, it was the first time that the sitting governor had not officially formally recognized it. It's one of those kind of pro forma things. It's really uncontroversial honoring law enforcement, except that this year's conflagrations and the political climate have changed that entire calculus. Uh, so that was a sign. That should have been a warning sign. 
Uh, and another warning sign was that the police chief basically told uh, the organizers, hey, you're going to be on your own, and it's your fault if something happens because we fear that, that uh, you know, the people who are protesting you at the Capitol in an unpermitted manner, by the way, uh, might do something, and so the burden is on you to protect your own First Amendment rights. Well, right. it, and, and, it didn't turn out it, very well, did it? No, no, it didn't turn out great. And I have to tell you that I did my homework, Michelle, and I've heard you all over 630K, how, where I used to work, mm-hmm. 710K in US, where I used to work. I've heard you with Peter and Randy before the event, et cetera. And I heard you say, and you just said it now, that it was a family-friendly event. But it sounded like uh, Payson said, we can't protect you. And I just wonder to what extent that was communicated to you. Um, well, I felt that there would be no safer place to be than a back-the-blue rally. I suppose my naivete has been thoroughly cured, and uh, that leaves me very bitterly cynical. And I know that so many of the good-hearted people who showed up also felt that this was not going to devolve, is the term that the police chief used, uh, in the way that it did. And I sure. don't believe that any of the organizers felt that way either, because what responsible parent would put their kids in harm way in right. that, in harm's way in that manner? Now, sure. I, I do have to say that this is, this is much different than, say, some of these Antifa and Black Lives Matter type people who use their kids as human shields, knowing that they themselves are going to perpetrate violence or incite it or provoke it. That is not the intention of people who are standing up for law enforcement at a time when law enforcement is under fire. Hey, Michelle Malkin, let's stipulate to a couple of things. I was a prosecutor in Denver for 16 years. I'd love to prosecute that guy who hit uh, the organizer McLaughlin with a longboard and put a gash in his forehead. I'd like to prosecute uh, the woman who threatened you and uh, even put silly string in your hair. You can't do that. And I have another guest this show, Samantha Cook, who's running for House District 1 as a Republican. She showed up a little late, saw the melee, and as she's leaving, a big guy told her he wanted to slit her throat. That stirs up my prosecutorial instincts, and I will stipulate with you that these people who attacked your group are in the wrong, and there's no excuse for what they did. But let's go back to what you guys knew and didn't know coming to the rally, organizing the rally. You weren't part of the call with Paisen. It was Corcoran talking to him, and Paisen claims that he warned him off. I've listened to Paisen's interview with Tubbs and Kaplitz. They won't say the name Corcoran, but I will. Wasn't it Randy Corcoran who, when he was told by the Denver police, hey, you're putting our officers in danger. We don't want it. Corcoran said, well, we have 200 guys coming. A lot of them have Harleys. They're retired military, some retired cops. We can take care of ourselves. And what do you make of all of that? Am I wrong? I asked Randy about that, and and perhaps you should have him on your show to talk about that. He told me me that Paul Pazin mischaracterized what the nature of their conversations in that manner were. And the bottom line is that they had their rally permitted. They had a permit approved. And to shift the burden of proof and then the burden of security to us, 
apparently these kinds of uh, permits are approved all of the time. And I heard Paul Pazin on the Dan Kaplan show uh, talk, uh, he, he cited the Taste of Colorado. Really? I'd like to call up the organizers of uh, Taste of Colorado and ask if they were similarly imposed upon to guarantee the safety of their people and to be responsible for protecting the constitutional rights of people who are exercising the First Amendment. This, this okay, is, let, this, sure. the, the, the shift and, and, right. and, and the blame game that's going on, I find thoroughly disgusting. And basically this is giving into the rule of the mob, because this is Paul Pazin saying, hey, you know those people that I marched arm in arm with a month ago? Well, we know that they have a propensity towards violence. After all, 76 of his own officers have been injured in these nightly melees and riots, right? But hey, I can't protect my guys against them, but you better. Uh, Right. But that's what he said, apparently, to Randy Corcoran. I can't protect my guys. I've already had 76 hurt. You say you want to throw a celebration of the police, and I'm telling you, this is dangerous for the police. Who wants to go to a party celebrating them when it puts them in danger? Maybe it's about time they had adequate security and adequate force. Did you see that? They knew that there were a thousand of them. They knew that they were going to shut us down, right? They said it. They said that they were going to do it. They could have drawn the line right here and protected not only their own men, but us. Like if there was ever a time to do it, it would have been Sunday afternoon. I've seen they should, they should be ashamed, and you should be outraged. I know. Don't you? You believe in it. you're an absolute absolutist when it comes to free speech, aren't you? Like if you can't, I, I am. Yes, here, I am. Yes, I you? am. Absolutely. I don't believe in cancel culture. I believe in confront it with your own ideas, and that's what we're doing right here, Michelle. Okay. And just as you had people tell you you shouldn't come on with me, who were who those people? Oh, I hear th- things from all sorts of people, and it do- in any case, it doesn't matter. I'm here, right? right? We, we can borrow it, right? And people say I shouldn't have you on, but I have yeah. you on. And so people also said, like this police chief said, "Don't have your event." You know, it, 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 is this is this the way the First Amendment works now? The mob gets right. to decide who exercises okay. our First Amendment rights or not. Sure. Unacceptable. Right. But let's talk and about social media. Us. You are a master. Let's cool it down to let me express how I feel about you since you talked about me. I have mixed feelings. I admire you so much because your intellect is amazing. Your composure on Fox News uh, through the years and other media outlets, including my show, uh, there's nobody quite like you. You're columnizing. I try. I write columns for the Colorado Sun. I'm pretty proud of it, but you are prolific as an author. You've developed websites that what have you sold two different large groupings to salem media you are extremely successful in modern media and i admire you i i put my career into practicing law i do this as a sidelight but am i right you you're an amazing entrepreneur in fact you put that as part of your twitter handle well i i appreciate that i'm proud of that and um you know, I'm I'm glad for the words, but my recollection from last fall is that uh, you pretty much disparaged the Stand With Ice rallies that I was doing and boiled it down simply to I was trying to sell books. First of all, I thought I it was, thought it was all, deliberately all, provocative. Let me just say what I said. I didn't like Tay Anderson using a bullhorn 
because that's what we were talking about, drowning out speech so that uh, Michelle Malkin or myself can't be hurt. Uh, he does it in better ways, but I, I hated that about Sunday because you guys had the stage and they tried to drown you out. That's not productive. So They did drown us out. They pushed right. us out. Right. I mean, I didn't get to say a single word. But, but wasn't it really, else. just to be honest, wasn't it a Salem Trump event more than really Back the Blue? Because didn't the Back the Blue Facebook page say, we want nothing to do with this rally? And part of it was the featured speakers were corporate and Chuck and Julie and Stephen Tubbs was going to be there. But the big name is Michelle Malkin. You have a gazillion social media followers, but you're a lightning rod. And I want to get to it because none of my colleagues with access to a microphone will talk to you about Nick Fuentes and the Groypers. And I've watched your Twitter feed. And at the end of it, after you're scared to death in my workhood, I speak to you from that neighborhood right now. I was scared for you. But then you start throwing shout-outs to the Groypers, and boy, that pissed me off, because the Groypers are some Jew-hating sort of people, and I don't like them, Michelle Malkin. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I knew you were going to get to this, and I'm so grateful to the young Groyper kid and his mom who rescued us from that mob. Uh, you know nothing about Groypers, because if you did, you wouldn't be so flippant in smearing all of them. Uh, and the guilt by association tactic, I think, is, is something else that I would think that somebody who fashions themselves a, a First Amendment and free speech, free speech champion uh, would thoroughly reject. Um, you Nick Fuentes, I spent well, my morning... You asked me a question uh, and now you're okay. interrupting me. I no, I, I'm sorry, but you start, said that yeah. I don't know anything about the Groypers. Yeah. One, I watched Nick Fuentes... Uh, use his switchblade against Ben Shapiro, confront him on the street. He didn't use the switchblade in person, but the imagery was something else. I've seen the collected work of Nick Fuentes. If you're telling me that you're not associated with Nick Fuentes and he's not a leader of the Groypers and was at the, that Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, I'm just asking you. I saw you give a speech on November 14, 2019, at UCLA, where you said, you know what, those Groypers who disrupted Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, I'm with them. I am with Nick Fuentes. I am with the Groypers. I'm there with V there and all those people who I worry about being white supremacists and Jew haters. So again, so the floor is yours. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, why don't you finish? Because I don't know. No, I, I, I give you a chance to respond, but I will tell you that I get worked up over <laughs> anti-Semitism. I would think you would. You're married to Jesse Malkin and you don't play around with anti-Semitism. You don't. What about Kirk Woodland, the producer at Can US, where you are a featured speaker, et cetera? Did you see that a Nazi, an apparent neo-Nazi was outed and he had been assigned to be my producer at Can US? Has there been any discussion in local media about that? Have any of these hosts said word one about a white supremacist in their midst? We need to call this out. And you're the one who says uh, you get canceled. But where's my invitation to talk about these things and my fears about anti-Semitism? Michelle? Are you done? I mean, I, well, you I, told I, me to go for it. I took no, your invitation. I, 
Yeah. So anybody can watch any of my speeches. I'm transparent about everything I do, as I have been for the last 30 years. I'm very proud of the speech I gave at AFPAC, the speech I gave at CPAC, uh, the work that I've done for America First. Uh, and, you know, you can characterize and lie about uh, the people that I proudly associate with, refuse to disavow, uh, and people who have sort of higher comprehension levels can read all of this stuff for themselves and judge for themselves. I'm proud that VDARE oh. has carried my column for 20 years. I'm uh, very, very uh, proud to stand by them in their lawsuit against Colorado Springs. Again, for people who actually truly believe in speech, it's despicable what the city of Colorado Springs did. And I will fight for the rights of freedom of speech, assembly, thought, association, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I do it uh, in a completely transparent manner. So, uh, you know, for you as a white man to call me a supremacist, a racist, all this type of stuff, to bring up my husband, which I'm proud to do myself, we're uh, celebrating 27 years of marriage tomorrow, it's ridiculous to call me the names that you and your associates I, I have uh, not. Me. I want, I want uh, to and, talk to you about uh, that. And that's all I have to say, because you have a lot of axes to grind about your work situation. No, I want you to comment kind of on that. I thought you, we were going to be talking about... Um, yeah, I thought well, we were going to actually no, be talking, but you just no, want to no, vent. No, no, no. I, I, I said, so, I said to you, I, 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 I emailed Jesse the Kirk Woodland material, but you don't want to talk about Kirk Woodland. Okay, goodbye. Good luck to you. You know, I've done my research. I've done my homework. Wow. Hooey. How is that for a hard landing? I gave you every inch of the interview. I did not edit anything. Not even when she told me that people were giving her shit for doing the show. I would suspect Randy Corcoran, who is not my favorite person, Randy Corcoran, who likes to organize these events to stir it up, breaking orders, public health orders in Castle Rock and Jefferson County. Go ahead, violate that order. It's toothless. And let's stir it up in Civic Center Park. Maybe Donald Trump will send in some federal troops. Who cares if all I know about the cops is I sue them with regularity I've never been a cop. I've never been a DA. I was a prosecutor for 16 years. I've represented many police officers since. I don't think these people wanted this party. I know Paul Pazin did not. Part of the reason I do this Saturday morning podcast is so I don't have to be bored by Corcoran, who decided he needed the only live local conservative show on 710 KNUS and then conspired with that Kirk Whitland to make up conspiracy theories against me that I lay out show after show, and there will be a big finish for that as well. But let's go back, as I had to, to the podcast to see what Corcoran was saying on Saturday morning before the fall on Sunday. We are going to find out a couple of things. Paul Payson, chief of police, did not want Corcoran and his group there. And I bet you didn't know that the real back the blue crowd wanted to stay away and their Facebook page would not circulate the information. 
And Corbin was worried about this, but then he found just the tonic. Michelle Malkin, and listen to these two profess their love for each other at the end of this rather interesting bite. And I spoke to the Denver chief of police yesterday and called him up to talk about a safety plan uh, if we decided to go forward, as we have. And all, he wouldn't talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it at all. All he wanted to yell at me was that uh, you're going to get my officers hurt. Uh, he's turned the streets over of Denver to, to domestic terrorists. We show up to support the men and women in blue. And their chief's response is you're going to get my cops hurt. <laughs> it leaves you speechless, doesn't it? It does. It is flabbergasting uh, to come up against that arrogant attitude, that hubris, and ingratitude, really. And, of course, we know, because both you and I and so many of the patriots who support law enforcement know, the rank and file are not reflected by the SJW hijacked brass. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the guy who walked hand-in-hand with Black Lives Matter. Okay, there it is. First of all, how is it funny when Paul Payson says he doesn't want his cops to get hurt and Michelle Malkin starts laughing about that? And really, Corcoran and Malkin speak for all the other cops? I wrote about this in the Colorado Sun. I know a lot of police, and too many of them support Trump, but a lot of them are better and smarter than that. As I talked about with some of my detective friends during impeachment, man, when you made a case... You didn't care whether the person who you had to arrest was a Republican or a Trumpian or a Democrat. What's up with judging things now based on your preference politically? But let me not interrupt further. The love affair between Michelle Malkin and Randy Corcoran. Randy Corcoran in love with the mother of the Groyper. Well, sunlight is always the best disinfectant, and you are shining it so brightly, Randy. Uh, I think that the taxpayers, not only in Denver, but the rest of Colorado, need to see this, and they need to not just sit on the sidelines. They need to do something about it. And um, I tweeted out the uh, graphic for the rally tomorrow and um, made it clear that there are two kinds of people now more than ever. There are talkers and there are doers. And one of the reasons I love you so much and, uh, you you know, you came through, you come through for the people time and time again, Randy. Um, We did it with Stand With Ice, and this is an extension of that. This is the sixth one that you've done now for the Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Is that correct? Yep. Good marketing to right-wing conservatives by attorney corporate who has his finger in everything, and it gets better, folks. You hire Randy, you don't have to pay. He'll set up a GoFundMe page. He'll break the orders of Douglas County or, God forbid, Tri-County Health. Open up a coffee shop early. Well, don't worry about it. The GoFundMe will pay for your lost profits and for my attorney fees. Last week and later this week, Dr. Mark Johnson coming up We're going to talk about Bandemir, where, don't you know, Randy had a plan, a plan to enrich himself and to make him the viable political leader he wants to be. Did you know he was elected Republican committee man with the help of Pat Neville and with the help of the Trump campaign? Now he's Mr. Back the Blue at the last moment. What's really going on here, folks? And now he's licking his chops. 
with his big boss at radio, Peter Boyles, and their House Minority Leader, Patrick Neville, and all the gun concerns that are involved there. My gosh. Dudley Brown on down. This is Randy Corcoran, who will not only represent you, he'll put you on the air every show, and you can ask for money for that GoFundMe page, and it's a lot of money. Here he is with John Bandemir, his client, who wanted to have over 7,000 people at his event, and he did on the 4th of July. Jeez, why would anybody get upset? Thank you, and thank you for being a, a patriot. I, uh, I I never thought I would ever be in that. I always thought I was a, I know I'm a believer and I, I follow Christ, but I'll tell you what, this being a patriot is something where you just stand up and say, wait a minute, enough is enough. Yeah. It's a lot of work, (laughs) but you know what? I couldn't, I couldn't be at the forefront of any of this without people like you who are willing to say yes I've had enough, or people like State Representative Patrick Neville, who's hired us to challenge the mask order. Um, there's a fundraiser set up there, stopthemaskmandate.com. And I know you don't pay any attention to this, but are, do you know that uh, the Bandamir Speedway GoFundMe has raised almost $50,000 from 530 donors? It's been shared 9.7 thousand times, and uh, and we're just getting into this battle. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. That's all I can say. Well, we'll, right. we'll talk before Tuesday, and I'll see you Tuesday, if not sooner. And if you want to find out about that case and how all those attorney fees were essentially wasted, listen to Dr. Mark Johnson, upcoming. But the law firms do well, now don't they? Interesting way to practice law. Interesting what's going on in talk radio where Peter Boyle's rules the roost, and he and others have anointed Michelle Malkin a hero. They can't be bothered with his Groyper stuff, even though it's been in the Denver Post. Andrew Stretman will be my guest next week. He wrote a good editorial about it. But it's been all over conservative media. What happened to Michelle Malkin? Nothing that stops Denver Trump radio from loving her. Canino said no. And that saved, according to many, many people I've spoken to, there have been a lot of elderly people maybe either in ICUs right now or terribly injured because Canino stood the line. Um, come to this, our, and I'm not shocked, Channel 9 didn't do it, 7 didn't do it, 4 didn't do it, the Deuce didn't do it, uh, but it's become a united front of, uh, of talk radio in the city, uh, KHOW Radio with Dan Kaplis, KOA with Mandy, uh, we're doing it. Uh, Stefan's doing it. But what does it speak to when none of these local television outlets have picked up this this story? Michelle, what do you do with that? Well, they chose sides, and they've chosen sides for a long time. And this shows you the importance of grassroots, locally-based talk radio. Uh, And it, 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 it mirrors the cleavage among many institutions, and particularly political institutions. And, of course, the corporate media is a political institution. Do you remember that BS about, hey, Craig was thinking about KHOW. He was going to be a guest on with capitalists. We can't talk about capitalists. We are competitors, not according to Peter Boyles, who is the head of Denver Trump Radio. And he regularly talks about KHOW. And 
what goes on over there. He loves the way this Back the Blue rally has united the right, almost like Charlottesville. Unite the right. Unite talk radio. Here he is professing his love for the situation that's gotten them all together. What a reach. KHOW, KNUS, a monopoly, all Trump, all the time, all Trump love. Never say anything bad about a hero like Michelle Malkin. So what if she's with some anti-Semitic groups? We can deal with that. That's okay. The more, the merrier. And truth be told, if you go deep down, are the Groypers and the Proud Boys and V-Dare really all that different? I thought Kirk Whitland was just mega mega. Turned out he's apparently a neo-Nazi. Working there at 710 KNUS, was that ever discussed in its aftermath? I sure was, for a week. Conspiracy theories propagated by Whitland and Corcoran, facilitated by Boyles and Tubbs. I remember the truth will win out. I hope you stay tuned for John Laboutlier, who predicts the fall of talk radio in the not-too-distant future, along with their hero, Donald Trump. I predicted, too. Podcasting is on the rise. People can say words like shit if they are appropriate, and they are today. And just like they did in the Third Reich, the rest of the media, the Jew media, is fake news and to be demonized, like that guy with the glasses on Channel 9, or that first Jewish governor who Peter Boyles has called Pontius Polis. What's that about? Now, Boyles does have police sources. Nick Rogers has been a frequent guest of mine, but more so with Boyles. And he saw fit to tell Boyles this week that a Lieutenant Menino had broken ranks and served to protect Michelle Malkin and the rest of the people from the people who attacked them. And his name is Menino. And Boyles gets this information because some cops text to him back and forth. They probably don't remember that case of Brian Gordon suing Peter Boyles for false accusations against that African-American officer, but I do. I look at the citation every once in a while to know a little bit more about Peter Boyles. Ah, yes. Officer Brian Gordon versus Peter Boyles in J Corp Broadcasting of Colorado. 9P3-1106. But let not the past be a bother. When you are in the company of Michelle Malkin, the love is profound. But in the meantime, what about us? I mean, well, we're living in an age of anarcho-tyranny, oh, yeah. and there's no protection. And that's why the next step is important. I know there'll be meetings and talks and conversations, but one thing has to be, I think, done, and, and it's, you know, is, and I, I, I really, this united front of talk radio capitalists and, and colleagues, you know, certainly Stefan and what happened on, on Mandy Connell, it, to me, it was, and we, Billy and I talked about it, because usually, you know, we don't break ranks, you know, we know each other, but that's it. But yesterday, when she played our show and sent it to the mayor, and, and then Danny talked about it on KHOW, and then Stefan did it, and it was a really interesting moment. And I don't, I haven't fathomed, fathomed all of it out yet, but it, it was, it was a united front. Oh, it's so romantic. The love, Michelle, Peter, that whole crew. 
Paul Pazin not being invited to the party. He's their whipping boy now. He went on Stephen Tubbs in the afternoon, and he had this explanation of what occurred in the run-up to the so-called Back the Blue rally. Again, the organizers first attempt at this was uh, the Thursday before uh, the event. Uh, they assured us that they had a safety plan that included uh, at least 200, if not more than 200 individuals that were going to provide the type of uh, safety plan that is required for any type of permitted uh, event. Uh, that quickly broke down. Mm-hmm. And then the Denver Police Department, the women and men, uh, stepped in in order to uh, protect uh, the, the community. Now, that is called into question if a retreat order was given and just one lieutenant broke ranks. It may be fortunate and saved Pazin's job because it could have gotten ugly. And I don't want that for any of these people, not at all. I would prosecute the perpetrators, as I said, to Michelle Malkin. But let's understand what's really going on and hear out Paul Pazin who had this to say about what he told the organizers. Sure. Did you ask that this not happen or that this event be moved to another location? We were concerned for uh, a situation like this, and we expressed those concerns with the event organizers. We were concerned for his officers to get hurt. They've had 76 cops hurt. Why? through a celebration in which the cops have to get in SWAT uniforms and heavy vests and put on all that crap because the confrontation's going to come. Quite a celebration you're planning for these guys. Really? You can't adjust under these extraordinary circumstances? Second rally of the day, too. They were out in Parker, but they came to the Greek Amphitheater, and we all know what happened next. I wanted to hear what Corcoran said to people on Saturday morning. So, gosh, I don't like to do it, but I went to the podcast and I listened to this. It tells you what you need to know about Corcoran and his contempt for Polis, his desire to undermine him, get him on the witness stand. Maybe somebody should get you on the witness stand, Corcoran. Here he is talking about why Polis is vulnerable. You can't adjust under these extraordinary circumstances. Second rally of the day, too. They were out in Parker, but they came to the Greek Amphitheater, and we all know what happened next. I wanted to hear what Corcoran said to people on Saturday morning. So, gosh, I don't like to do it, but I went to the podcast and I listened to this. It tells you what you need to know about Corcoran and his contempt for Polis, his desire to undermine him, get him on the witness stand. Maybe somebody should get you on the witness stand, Corcoran. Steve Reams was going to come to the event, so why shouldn't the good people of Denver? Surely Steve Reams will protect them. And besides that, you've got the Harley-riding Randy Corcoran. And he's always talking every Saturday about his events have all the Harley riders and tough retired cops and military, and no one would ever mess with them. He taunts the opposition. Wow. Here he is with Steve Reams talking about Michelle Malkin and love is in the air. And they see weakness in Jared Polis, who candidly told the people of Colorado he did not have much 
in the way of enforcement power. And that's all it took for some people to take a mile. And uh, she'll be one of our featured speakers tomorrow in downtown Denver, along with this guy, Weld County Sheriff Steve Reams. None better. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Randy. How are you? I am good, Steve. Have you ever heard this comment from Polis very early into the shutdown, picking winner and loser orders, all brought about as a result, they say, of the Chinese Communist Party Wuhan virus? Um, because the thing about an order, and even though it's an order, you know, there, there wasn't, there's never any criminal enforcement of that order, right? It's just saying this is important enough to be called an order. You ever heard that clip? Yes, I have, and that's actually how we decided. Uh, that's kind of what gave us the stepping-off point in Weld County to say, well, you know, obviously if the governor recognizes that these aren't new criminal laws. Uh, we're not going to go out and actively try to enforce something that's non-enforceable. And now with Steve Reams there, Randy Corcoran despicably starts saying, I've got secret sources, secret police, who tell me that Paul Pazin and his commanders are bad people. And I'm going to say it on the radio, not citing my sources, but letting people know that I am well aware of how Denver police feel. Just like my boss, Peter Boyles, we know all. I say bullshit to that. Most cops are better than that. You think they're like the guys that Donald Trump thought when he made that joke about banging prisoners' heads while they're handcuffed against the door frame? Most of those cops did not laugh, but I bet these guys would. Here they are, together, egging on the Denver chief of police, treating him in a contemptible way. I think the Denver police officers are, are doing their absolute best to try to make sure that uh, they keep their community safe, despite what the leadership may be allowing them to do. Well, Sheriff Reams, they're beleaguered. I mean, you know, I've I've talked to people whose names will remain entirely unmentioned. Uh, there is no support for the the street cop, the beat cop, felt in Denver by their by their superiors. And the chief of police yesterday, he didn't want to talk about safety plans. He wanted to, uh, with an elevated voice, he didn't tell us not to do it. He just said, "You're going to get my people hurt." That's that's all he wanted to convey. And I just remember how incredibly professionally and of, and sufficiently that retired Aurora police chief Nick Metz worked with us when we did the Stand with Ice rally with Michelle Malkin and you. Weak stuff. A weak bullshit way of arguing. You know, he was on that six to nine shift ahead of me. And when I left, and I will document this, none of the hosts would debate me about impeachment. But of course, Corcoran wanted to. But I don't like the guy. I don't respect him. And I wrote a text back to him that I don't think it will work if I don't like and respect the other person. And he came in. It was funny because he said, Craig, I like you. I respect you. I, I hope you didn't get the wrong idea. And I said, no, it's me. I don't like or respect you. I don't like the way you debate. And I don't like the way you sick your sycophants, the Trump team against your opponents. I saw what you did when you were with Ted Cruz and how you've jumped on that Trump train and ridden it for all it's worth. But I am calling you out and I'm also publicly inviting you and I'll write to you that you can come back on my show. 
only because I had said that to Michelle Malkin, and I'll live up to my word. Before I did that Bandemir story, I wrote to you asking for your comment. You wrote back, LOL. Well, laugh out loud. Some of us don't think it's funny. The Groypers, the Proud Boys, V-Dare. You're the attorney for V-Dare. That lawsuit got thrown out. You're losing that case. You're losing all of these cases, but you're making a fortune and you're making a name for yourself. What kind of a name? We shall see. Enough about Corcoran and Malkin and those kind of people and Woodland. Let's move on to a great rest of my podcast. Dan Lovett. Dan Lovett. I think I know you from somewhere. How do we know each other? God, let me think, Craig. I think we started doing things together, gosh, it was many years ago. I think I was about 16 years old. We went to high school together, a lot of basketball, and just, you know, we we know each other pretty well. I know. We are the best of friends. And it dates so far back to the day of pinball machines. Remember that? How come you make fun of me and the event that stunted my growth and held me back? Tell everybody about it from your perspective. Well, I think you were about, I think there were three of us there and we were playing a pretty competitive game. You were getting really close to taking the lead and you know, you did a little too much wiggling of the machine. It tilted. And right before you got above the person who was in the lead and you just jumped up in the air and the only problem was the ceiling above you was only six and a, six and three quarters feet tall and you went about eight or ten inches too far and hit your head and it really it really banged your head I think it made a big difference in your world it has it's bad experience ABC Bowling Alley, there on Colorado Boulevard. You remember it well, they had a pinball area with a low roof. And I never jumped that high again. I couldn't, because it really set me back. I had to overcome it. But you were a witness. I got knocked to the ground with a serious concussion. And you and our other friend were laughing when I came to. Why? Oh, man, it was so funny. I think it was the farthest you'd ever jumped. It was about six or eight inches, and we could not stop laughing. You were so close to taking the lead, but you just didn't make it. It's basically what they call an untimely tilt. Right. But you have to move the machine around a little to be competitive. Am I right? You have to get a feel for the machine. You're right. I thought I had that feel. I was stunned when it went on tilt. I couldn't believe it. It still makes me laugh today, Craig. Here's part of my suspicion, Danny, that you might have shook the machine from the side because I still don't think I did anything to tilt that machine. Is that a possibility? Oh, if, if it is, it's a very small possibility. That's my old pal, Dan Lovett. He loves my podcast. I hope you do too. I'm sure you will love working with Dan Lovett. What does he do? I'm glad you asked. Sandler Training. Dan has been such a successful salesperson through the years. Now he's teaching other people how to do it. At Sandler Training, a world-recognized organization for salespeople. Do you want to grow your sales? Do you have a sales team that is underperforming? 
Call my pal, Dan Levitt. Tell him Craig sent you. The number to call, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. You can email Dan Levitt directly at dan.levitt at sandler.com. Check him out, Sandler Training. It can make a world of difference for you and your sales team. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. I am on Twitter, Craig S. Colorado, or Craig's Colorado, at Craig's Colorado. That's where I was found by Samantha Cook, who decided to follow me. And then I said, I am going to look into Samantha Cook. We had a little direct message exchange. Next thing you know, she's on the podcast. It's sort of like call of the week, but I come to find out you are running for public office. Tell us about yourself, Samantha Cook. Yes, yes. No, I'm, I'm glad we found each other. It's a great opportunity to speak with you. Yes, I'm running for office in Denver for House District 1. I'm a mom. I have three children of my own, and I'm a business owner. What do you know about me, your humble host? <laughs> I know a little bit about you. I, I used to listen to you quite a bit when you were on the show with Jan Kaplis. So it was it was fun for me to hear both sides of the argument, which is something that I thoroughly enjoy. I enjoy engaging with people, you know, that see things differently than I do. So yeah, I always appreciated that. Where do you go for radio? I listen to six thirty K How and seven ten K N U S. You know, just this. A couple of the lo- the local stations, they don't have as much time to sit down with the radio as I'd like to. But, you know, when I do, those are kind of who I tune into. Who are your role models in politics? You know, I have to say that Kaylee McEnany is kind of my superhero right now. <laughs> I like how she just kind of tells it how it is and she doesn't lose her cool. And she, you know, sticks to the facts and tries to keep the, you know, keeps the story focused on on issues. And I really appreciate how she approaches things. Who's your favorite in Denver broadcasting? And you can say me. That's okay. Well, it's true, Craig. You are my favorite. <laughs> and even wow. more so after today, because you have such great taste in, in guests. What about Randy Corcoran? I haven't listened to him as much, but I've heard good things. So I will have to check his station out. You went to the rally, Back the Blue. I want to talk to you about that. Why did you go? How did you hear about it? Well, as a candidate, we were invited about a month ago. We heard about this rally. And as you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's an annual event. So, you know, we were asked to come and speak and just come and show support of our officers. So, you know, that was the initial reason. And then a few days before the rally, we heard that there was a a protest plan. So, you know, I myself personally was weighing whether or not it was a good idea to show up, but you know, especially in the climate of our country right now, I felt that it was especially important to show up and to remind our officers that, you know, there's a lot of people that support them and appreciate what they do. Who invited you a month before? It was our campaign manager that let us know about the event. So I don't remember who his contact was. I believe it may have been Steve Reams. Steve Reams, the sheriff in Walt County. Absolutely. That makes sense. He is prominent, and he was there with you. Uh, do you know Steve Rams? Have you heard him on uh, KNUS or KHOW a lot? Um, I have not. It wasn't until this event that I really um, you know, knew who he was. So I believe that was the contact that extended the invitation to Denver candidates to be there. Okay, that's interesting. Steve Rams, and you put it on your calendar. 
Tell us about the experience. What was it like to go to Back the Blue last Sunday in Denver? It was interesting, to say the least. I arrived at about 3.30. So when I got there, I wasn't aware of some of the chaos that had ensued just before then. I was told to go to the stage area, and I didn't understand what they meant by the stage area. And come to find out, it was because this area was overrun with protesters. It was completely shoulder to shoulder, this sea of protesters that had shown up. So I, I couldn't see the stage, which is why I didn't know where to find it. So we, you know, we stayed for a while. I found some of the people that I was supposed to meet up with. And the police, you know, their, their presence there was increasing because of, you know, the hostile environment. I engaged with a couple of the protesters. You know, I'm always trying to have conversations. I understand, you know, it may, may not have been the most productive thing to do. Excuse me to do, but uh, you know, trying to to let them know. Yes, I agree. Black lives matter. You know, yes, I agree. We can talk about police reform, but it wasn't a particularly productive conversation. So I turned around because I was down on the stairs. I turned around to to start making my way out and realized that all the rally goers that had been around me were now outside of the event, and and the area I was in was now surrounded by protesters. So I tried to get, you know, make my way out and, you know, people kind of screaming in my face and yelling at me. And, you know, I wasn't really engaging with that. And then this one particular group decided to follow me kind of out of the event. And this one lady started screaming in my face and slapping my phone and trying to hit me. And I was, you know, just I was (laughs) not impressed, but I was trying not to get caught up in it. And then a, a guy, this big guy came up beside her and got in my face and said, I want to slit your throat. I would love to slit your throat right now. And he said it about three or four times. What did these people look like? Were they white, black, Hispanic? Well, yeah, the interesting thing is is pretty much anybody that screamed in my face or, you know, tried to get have an altercation with me was white. The nicest lady that I talked to was actually this this black lady. And I was trying to have a conversation with her, but there were people with noisemakers walking around trying to prevent these conversations from happening. And this white girl got in my face with her pot and pan and, you know, banging it in our face so we couldn't talk. But she was really nice. But everybody else that was extremely hostile was white. So it was it was interesting. <laughs> this guy who said he'd like to slit your throat. How old was he? I would say probably early 20s, a good six inches taller than me and quite a big guy. How tall are you? I'm 5'9". So I, you know, I'm pretty tall. So I would say he was probably around 6'2". Were you alone? I mean, you you had these two people confronting you and probably more, but did you have anybody as a companion to you? Not anybody that I knew, but when he said that, these two guys that were apparently with the rally stepped in between myself and him, you know, to protect me. And they, you know, they didn't yell or anything. They just said, you know, we need to stop, just stop. So I did have a couple of, of good guys step in and, and, you know, come to my aid. But as far as people that I knew, um, they were they were gone. So Samantha Cook, who went to the rally, back the blue. She just described that she got there a little late when the stage had already been dismantled. Then she tried to talk with people. Some people got in her face, did some terrible things. I hope you got out of there okay. I did. Physically, I was fine. Emotionally, I was a little bit shaken up, but, you know, but I was just glad that we got out of there safely and I reconnected, you know, via phone with the other people that were there and made sure that they were safe. So that was a relief as well. Well, 
Did you consider the danger when you went to that rally at the Greek Amphitheater and Civic Center Park? I did. I did. And that's why, you know, I really kind of had to weigh the personal decision to to show up. But I had made the commitment. I didn't know, you know, to my my campaign and to the other candidates to be there. So I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to really escalate. So, you know, I just kind of waited out. And, you know, since I had made this commitment to be there and that I felt it was important to show support. And I really, you know, I, I also made the personal analysis that I, you know, I'm tired of these mobs telling us where where we can congregate, what we can do in our own city and what we can stand up for. So I just kind of made the decision that I, I needed to be there and show support for the other side as well. What lesson have you taken away? Ultimately, you know, I think that it's important to continue to try to continue to stand up for our country. You know, it's not to say that we all have to agree on everything. And like I said, I really appreciated your show with Dan Kaplis years ago where you could have differing conversations and differing opinions and at least, you know, be civil to each other. And, And that's not and that's a place that we've really gotten away from. So I want to see more of, you know, the people that want to see a civil society and want to see people be able to have those conversations show up and support that cause. Because otherwise, you know, these mobs and these people that are so angry are really going to take control and we're not going to be able to do that. I do think that if conservative people continue to show up, that they do need to take additional safety measures. Make sure you're in groups, make sure that you're you know, whether it's a buddy system, you know, if you leave, I leave, you have my back, you're here for me, you know, that they make sure that they're not alone and that they have an agreement with other people that they're not going to be um, by themselves at any point. Do you think the Denver police handled this well or poorly? I would have, I, you know, I, I did hear that they were instructed by our mayor and by other officials to stand down and to not engage. And I understand the position that they're in, you know, officers across the country, if they appear to step into anything where the, the person that they're engaging with looks innocent, you know, the person that could be trying to cause harm is usually the one that people side with. So they're really, they really do have their hands tied in how they can get involved. So I understand their position. So I didn't feel that they weren't standing up for us. Samantha, where did you hear that from? that the mayor was involved in telling the police officers to stand down. Where did you get that information? You know, I it was just something I've heard from several people, just people that I know. So, you know, it's we don't want to state, I can't state that as like fact because I need to, you know, make sure. But I've heard it from enough people to, to say, you know. Did you hear Police Chief Pazin went on Stephen Tubbs' show and Dan Kaplan's show on Monday and he explained what happened. Did you hear that? I did not. So I'm definitely interested to hear. When you went to this event, did you assume that the people who organized it had some security provided that a safety plan? I did not hear if they did or not. In any event, Chief Payson said that the organizers were told there may be problems, but he got assured that there would be a security force of up to 200 people many of them on uh, Harley-Davidson's, and uh, therefore the rally was going to proceed. Did you know anything about that? No, I had heard the opposite that, you know, members of the police department, but I, I can't remember if it was Steve Reams or not, but they were telling, they were advising people to not go, you know, to, so to avoid creating a dangerous situation for the officers to have to step in. So I was told that, you know, we were kind of being encouraged 
to to stay home and to just kind of stay away from this event. <laughs> so, but no, I wasn't aware of other measures taken, you know, in regards to other people that were there. Who do you understand to be the organizers of the Back the Blue event? I believe it was Ron McLaughlin and Randy Corcoran. Those are the two main names that I'm aware of. I know Michelle Malkin was there. So those are the three people that I know were were involved in getting this together and were there to what speak. About, what about Steve Brims? I believe he was as well. I you know I don't want to be quoted as fact, but I believe he was. Sure. And House Minority Leader Patrick Neville, do you know him? I do know him, and yes, I I did see that he was there as well. How much do you know about Michelle Malkin? Are you a fan? Do you know her? Do you admire her as a fellow woman who's out there expressing her opinion? You know, I do support her. She was at our rally about a month ago, standing against this vaccine bill. So she came to support us in that as well. I don't know her well enough to know if we agree on literally every single thing. But for what, from what I know of her, I appreciate her support and being there to speak on our, on our behalf. Wasn't Randy Corcoran also involved in organizing that anti-vax rally at the Capitol that Michelle Malkin and you were at? I'm honestly not sure if he was or not. I've heard him talk about it on the radio. Let's flesh that out a little bit. Are you going to be telling us when we get this coronavirus vaccine that you don't want to take it? I personally haven't decided what we're going to do. I am not, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I I do vaccinate my children. They are on the regular vaccine schedule. I just feel that it's extremely important for people to be able to make those kinds of decisions to the best of their knowledge in regards to their own health. So that's my position on any vaccines, but even this coronavirus vaccine. But it's so contagious. If you don't vaccinate your kids, isn't that a danger to others? Well, I mean, I have been looking at several sources of information that, you know, seem to unanimously say that children are have very li- seen very little impact from this virus and even haven't been able they haven't been able to prove that their carriers or that their prime components to spreading it even as asymptomatic carriers. So, they seem to see very 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 little effect from this. So, you know, that younger age group really seems to have superpowers when it comes to this virus. Then there are extremes on the left and the right. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's extremes on both sides. Are you an extremist? No, <laughs> I'm not an extremist at all. I, you know, I appreciate both sides of perspectives and different viewpoints and where people are coming from. And it's it's really important to be able to recognize that. So I don't think extremists extremes help either side. Who in the Republican Party is too extreme for you? I'm not even sure. What about Brian Kemp in Georgia, who is telling the city of Atlanta, you cannot mandate masks. I'm going to sue you to stop it. Is he too far or you don't know? What's your answer about him? I mean, I have my own opinions about mask mandates. So, But as far as Brian Kemp, I mean... Yeah, I don't know enough about that situation. Fair enough. What is your opinion about Jared Polis' mask mandate? I am not a fan of mask mandates. I think that's an overreach, you know, to make this wide sweeping decisions about masks. You know, he doesn't know each person's individual medical history or their situation, you know, to make a sweeping decision for people. You know, we know who's vulnerable. We know who is at, at a much higher risk for this. 
virus. And so I do agree that those people should perhaps take higher precautions for their health. But when you fall into a category like myself, where it's I'm at a much lower risk or my children that are at much lower risks, I think that there could be more health problems caused by consistent mask wearing and depriving your blood cells of oxygen than that could be, you know, at risk for catching the virus. So I think it's a personal decision that people need to evaluate themselves. Stephanie Cook running for office in Denver. I imagine you will meet a lot of people. If you don't wear a mask and if you get the COVID, aren't you worried that by not wearing a mask, you will spread it to your potential constituents? I am worried about that. So, you know, I do take extra precautions myself. I, you know, respect people's space. I stay in between them, you know, and if I am at an event where there's a lot of people, I'm respectful of that. And I will wear a mask if that, you know, if that, if the situation calls for it. So I'm not anti-mask. I am just anti-mask mandates. Ms. Cook, what if the premier infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, and others state that if 90% of us wear masks, we can get this over with and manageable within a month or so, and your kids and my kids can go to school. What about that argument? Isn't that persuasive to you? I believe, honestly, that too many people are treating this situation like we're still in the middle of March. So if, you know, Anthony Fauci, you know, he has lost some credibility with me. I did see you know, a behind the scenes video the other day where as soon as the cameras were off, he removed his mask immediately. We've heard different statements from him referring to masks as more of a a moral stance or symbol versus actually being health, you know, beneficial to our health. So I'm not sure that if it came from Dr. Fauci, I would, you know, give it a whole lot of water. But anytime any of our medical professionals come out and say, hey, you know, everybody needs to I look into that information and I I try to do as much research as possible because I have no interest in in endangering the health of anybody else. But I also want to make sure that I'm making a critical, informed decision. Right. Okay. You've done what uh, Peter Navarro from the White House and uh, Donald Trump has done, which is to put down Anthony Fauci. So let's take him out of the equation. You have your concerns about Fauci. But let's say you found 10 scientists who voted for Donald Trump. They're staunch Republicans. They want to vote for you in House District 1. But they come to you and say, listen, Samantha, if 90% of the people wear masks for the next three or four weeks, then your kids and Silverman's kids can go to school this fall. Would that impact you? And would you then come out as an advocate for a mask mandate? Well, honestly, my driving force for whether or not somebody should wear a mask is their own personal health and their own personal situation. I mean, if we were seeing this thing and we had data come out saying, hey, suddenly everybody's at risk, you know, this thing has, you know, a massively high death rate. And, you know, this really is dangerous to the extent where we all need to wear masks to stop it. That would be one thing. Whether or not people are coming to me saying, you know, we need you to wear a mask so that we'll vote for you. We need to remove politics from this decision and make sure that we're focusing on the health aspect of it. So again, I mean, I can't say yes or no as to whether it would. It really depends on. Well, I'm giving you a hypothetical. Let's say the top scientist said 100%. Everybody wear a mask for the next two days and COVID will be gone. Would you still oppose it? 
I, you know, I think I could get on board with that. You know, I can do something for a couple days and, and see where that leads us. And if, you know, okay. if that would get rid of COVID, I right. would be on board. <laughs> I, I'm always interested in people's breaking points. And let me suggest to you at this Back the Blue rally that you've acknowledged was organized by Steve Reams, Randy Corcoran, and the big star was Michelle Malkin. Have you ever heard about Michelle Malkin and her affiliation with a guy named Nick Fuentes? I have not. I've heard a little bit about it. I don't know a ton about the situation. Well, Nick Fuentes is a young man on the right who thinks that people like Charlie Kirk, who heads up Trump's college organization, that they are too moderate. And he thinks that uh, people should stand up stronger and he's more of a white nationalist. And along the way, he's into Holocaust denial. And most people on the right say, we want nothing to do with Nick Fuentes and his group, the Gripers. But Michelle Malkin, in a declaration in mid-November of 2019, said, in effect, I'm with the Nick Fuentes of the world. I'm open to his uh, conservative advocacy it's the wave of the future. And have you ever heard any of this before? I have not. But now that you mentioned the name Nick Fuentes, I am I am slightly familiar with who he is. And that is, you know, in my personal view, too extreme for me. Um, but that's also why I really advocate for people to, you know, not just follow people because, you know, you've agreed with something that they've said in the past or done in the past. We need to make sure that whatever they're saying, that we do our due diligence and research and make sure right. that, you know, that we advocate for the things that are correct and call people out when they're when they do get too extreme. When you start embracing American nationalism, white power people, have you heard about the Proud Boys? Sounds familiar. <laughs> there are people yet. on the right who are big on white power, white supremacy. Yeah, that's a dangerous ideology. That's not something I support at all. I'm, you know, I support the idea that America is for everybody and works for everybody and has opportunity for everybody. So when we talk about, you know, anybody forming a group that says that their, you know, that their ethnicity is superior to another, that's not something I support. Does it bother you? Does it affect you? Does it make you think maybe these aren't the right guys to put on a back the blue rally? Michelle Malkin, who embraces Nick Fuentes and the Groypers. When she escaped, have you watched her on Twitter? I know you follow her on Twitter because you retweet her. Did you watch her video? Which video? I'm sorry. The one where she lost her shoe and got uh, intimidated and chased off that stage. I thought it was awful what happened to her, apparently before you arrived. But then she she live streamed the whole thing. And ultimately, she gets rescued and driven to a parking garage near the state capitol. Did you watch that? I did. I did watch that video, yes. Did you notice at the end she started thanking her Groyper friends and make several Groyper references? You laugh about that, but I so I expect you heard that, right? I I did hear what she was saying. I wasn't familiar with the Groyper reference. I just don't find it funny as a Jewish person for any group that embraces Holocaust denial or anything to do with the Nazis. Can we agree that anti-Semitism and Nazism are bad? Oh, yes, we're definitely on the same page. And I don't mean to laugh at this situation. I just 
find it interesting that that was how she chose to make herself feel better. So sometimes, you know, sometimes people say and do things that we don't understand. And I don't support that ideology at all. You seem like such a nice person, but I'm just, (laughs) I try. I'm just saying that this back the blue rally, I worked 16 years in Denver law enforcement. I really respect police officers and the job that they do. And I have no problem with back the blue. But when it's organized by certain people who have frequently expressed hostility toward law enforcement, I I just wonder about it. For example, would you be okay with Donald Trump sending federal troops onto the streets of Denver? You know, if we had a situation where we looked like Seattle, I would not have a problem with that because it is our local government where it's our governor and our mayor's job to make sure that our cities don't amount to that level of violence and anarchy. And I want, ultimately, I want to see Governor Polis and Mayor Hancock address these things and make sure that people are safe. If they're not going to do that, then we need people to come in and protect innocent people, innocent people's businesses and to make sure that things stay under control. So first and foremost, I hope that, like I said, our local government takes care of it and that we don't get to that level. But if people aren't going to do it, then, you know, they've got to be able to count on some, someone to come in and take care of the situation. Samantha Cook, our special guest, so generous to talk to me. I appreciate it. We just started following each other on Twitter. And next thing you know, I wanted to have a good conversation like I did back in the talk radio days And this is sort of the equivalent. Let me have you give letter grades. She's the mother of three grade school kids. We're going to grade A to F. Jared Polis and his response to the pandemic. A to F, what grade do you give Jared Polis? I would give him maybe a D. I wouldn't fail him completely, um, but I do feel like he has not adjusted to some of the information, but I can also give him credit for not being as extreme and restrictive as some of these other places that we've seen. So I do appreciate that. Does he pass to the next grade or does he have to repeat this year in school? I think we can send him to the next grade. You know, I I still, you know, he's got potential. (laughs) What about Donald Trump? What letter grade do you give the president? I would give him probably maybe a B minus. I think that some of his narrative around the around the coronavirus or repeatedly honing in on the fact that he shut down travel between here and China, you know, that's an important factor, but I think there's other things that he could be focusing on and talking about. I do appreciate that he congregated a group of uh, medical experts and a team to formulate the, the data and the uh, the information that was important. So to me, you know, relying on those medical experts has been really useful for most of us. You mean like the way he relies on Anthony Fauci? Well, I'm, I, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. But you, you're the one who gives Trump a B and Polis a D on the COVID response. You are a conservative. You're the mother of three. What state do you think has done it the best? I would say I think I've been impressed with places like Florida, where they, you know, they kind of focused more on you know, protecting elderly, you know, the elderly and the most vulnerable versus making sweeping mandates. So I think that they've done a decent job, though. I have heard they haven't had a surge in cases recently. They're the hot spot of the world. Ron DeSantis said 
hey, we did everything right. Maybe you saw that a couple months ago when it started crowing, but now they have a disaster on their hands in Florida, which brings me back to where do you get your information? Well, I get my information from a variety of sources, and there have been dozens of reports on questionable COVID reporting and testing and, you know, inaccurate testing and and centers that are, you know, presenting 100% positive rates. So I think that there are a lot of questions, which is a whole separate issue as to whether or not we can trust the numbers that we're seeing. (laughs) The hospitals in Florida are full. Same thing in South Texas. They are sending refrigerator trucks for the dead bodies. Or do you think that's a hoax? I don't think it's a hoax, but I have heard that the hospitals are at no higher capacity than they were a year ago. You know, they're they're at, you know, 80 to 90 percent, which is what helps hospitals function. And not that I want to see more people in the hospital, but they're experiencing rates that, you know, that they are used to seeing. Whereas months ago, they were practically empty because nobody was coming in for any reason. So, you know, I think there's a lot of information out there and we need to make sure that we're finding the most accurate and not the dramatized ones. Samantha Cook, you are delightful. Thank you for speaking with me. You are intelligent. I respect the mother of three. What a full-time job. And it sounds like you want to be a good public servant. And I love that about people. At the same time, yeah, I think Donald Trump is toxic in Denver and in Colorado. He has no chance to win. I think that within a year, most people, even in the Republican Party, will recognize he was a bad president, he was corrupt, and we want to disassociate ourselves from him. I'm going to give you a chance right now, since it's July 2020, why should people in a year, if that feeling predominates, why should they still trust Samantha Cook? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I focused on in my campaign is making sure that people discern between my campaign and Trump's campaign. You know, I'm running as a representative to advocate for the people around me. I might have more conservative viewpoints than some, but I am not running on the campaign of Donald Trump. I'm running, you know, as somebody that's directly associated with the people around me and want to see what's best for them, regardless of what's happening in the White House. We can have a conversation about what's happening in the White House. That's a separate issue. What I want to know is what the people around me care about and what's important to them. You are great. And if you find out information about Michelle Malkin, share it with me. Let's you and I go back and forth because I like Michelle. I met her husband and her kids. I met them in Aurora at a personal appearance. I'm very disappointed with the turn she has taken. And I probably need to try to get her on the air. Maybe I'm getting bad information myself, but what I've seen about her dalliance with the Groypers and Nick Fuentes, it bothers me, and I hope it bothers all people of goodwill. It does, it does, and I and I do hope that people look for accurate information and, and make informed decisions on anybody that they come across. You know, that's the most important thing. Thank you very much. Good luck to you, and uh, good health to you and your family. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Samantha. Have a good one. You too. Let me tell you about the realities of working as a Denver lawyer right now. We do it in a variety of ways. Here at Springer and Steinberg, you can come meet with us downtown where we practice social distancing and we wear masks when we meet. 
and we're not socially distanced. Or you can meet with us online by Skype, FaceTime, any other form of communication. We can meet you in a park. This law firm does personal injury work better than any place I've seen. We have over a dozen top-notch lawyers dedicated to delivering the best results for our clients. And we do it over and over. The number to call, 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. It's not just personal injury, motor vehicle or truck collisions, pedestrian crashes, bicycle incidents, but we do criminal over here as well. And we do family law. We solve business disputes. We do a little of everything here with our Sharp legal team. If we can help, give me a call, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Check us out online, springersteinberg.com. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Gosh, I stumbled into something great. Dr. Mark Johnson. I know Mark Johnson, the voice of the buffs. What a great guy he is. This Mark Johnson is the executive director of Jeffco Public Health. He's an MD. He's been at that job since 1990. I reached out to Jeffco Public Health and the Bandemir side of the case as I wrote about the situation for the Colorado Sun and talked about it on my podcast. Jeffco Health said we can't talk while the litigation is pending, but now it's over. And boy, what a conversation I had with Dr. Mark Johnson. You've been a prominent member of our community for quite a while. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, I, I consider myself a Coloradan, although I was actually born in, in Africa. But I grew up in Grand Junction, went to school through high school in Colorado, then went to college and medical school out in California, did my residency training at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, went back and taught a while in uh, Southern California Medical School. Then I worked in Wyoming at the State Health Department for a couple of years and have been here in Jefferson County as the executive director for 30 years. That's sort of my life history, quickly. Wow, 30 years in one job. Did you ever think you were going to stay that long? Is this a dream job for you? And uh, is it still a dream after 2020? (laughs) It has been a wonderful job. When I first started it, I thought I would be here probably for about five years. My my thought was I would move on to a state uh, health department job or possibly with the CDC or World Health Organization, but I sort of cut off my opportunity to work for the state health department when I got in a fight with the governor. And every time I'd find a job somewhere outside of the state, my family said they would miss me because they were staying here. So, Which governor did you get in a fight with? I got in a fight with Roy Romer over the qualifications for the director of the state health department. Interesting. How big of a staff do you have there at the Jefferson County Public Health Department? 
We have about 185 staff members, although we are in the midst of hiring more to help us with our response. So we'll probably end up a little bit over 200. Tell us about this pandemic. What can I do to protect myself and my family? You know, there are still so many questions that are unanswered, but one of the questions that seems fairly clear is that the main way this disease is spread is through droplets, and basically spit, snot, saliva, however you want to call it. The main way is uh, is is somebody who is ill, coughing, sneezing, talking loudly, laughing, screaming, shouting, and that you then either breathe in some of those droplets or get those droplets in your nose or in your eyes, and uh, it then spreads. So the best way you can protect yourself or your family is to stay away from people who may be sick. That's the social distancing side. If you are in a position where you can't keep the, keep away from people, the second best thing to do is to wear a mask to cut down on the spread of the, those droplets into your nose and mouth. Those really are the best ways. The third best, the third way is if you are touching places where people may have coughed or sneezed or left something that was infectious, wash your hands. So the, the three basic things are social distancing, wearing a mask, and washing your hands frequently, and then to help if you might possibly be infected, to help you from keeping to, uh, spreading it to others is cover when you cough, cough into your elbow or use a tissue and then wash your hands. And it's really fairly simple. Dr. Mark Johnson, did you have any hand in the decision by Jeff, Jeff Coe's schools to delay opening? They're going to start online. It was just announced. Do you approve of that decision? Were you a part of it? I approve of that decision. We have been working closely with the school district uh, for months now and trying to figure out exactly what the best way to, to reopen is. I was not directly uh, involved in that decision, but we have uh, certainly shared a lot of information back and forth. I certainly approve of that, that decision. We all followed this case of Jefferson County Public Health and Bandemir Speedway. It took place in the courthouse, the Taj Mahal in Jeffco. I'm very familiar with that building. Were you there physically or did you do it online? I was there physically for the whole trial and then for the, the judge's verdict. Tell us about the court experience. Was it uh, unlike anything you've been to before? It was different. There were limits as to how many people, first of all, can get into the courthouse, how many can go up in an elevator, and then how many uh, people can be in each courtroom, uh, in the courtroom. We were requested to wear masks and to socially distance. And it was much less packed as far as there were really no spectators. It was only the, 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 the plaintiff and the defendants and their families and attorneys. So it was, it was much different. Did you testify? Yes. When you testified, did you have your mask on or did you take it off? During testimony, I could take my mask off, so I didn't. And you sat at council table the rest of the time? I sat six feet behind the council table so that we had the social distancing.
Tell us about the hearing. I had uh, Rick Salantron. He followed it mainly over Zoom or WebEx. And he told us that the Bandemir side of the case was arguing that there was no pandemic. And did you hear that? Is that true? What do you remember about that? During the testimony itself, I did not hear that direct quote. There were some some arguments uh, about whether, at least from the attorney, there were some some questions as to how serious the the pandemic was. There were some questions about the authority that the governor and the state and the county had to to do some of the things that we were uh, asking to be done. But as far as any direct quote that there was not a pandemic, I did not hear it during court right. itself. No. I, I think I was told the Bandemir attorney, Randy Corcoran, advanced arguments that the pandemic had largely dissipated, even made arguments about herd immunity, such as has been attempted in Sweden. And Salinger, just as you recounted, said it was during Corcoran's argument and apparently the judge shut that down at a certain point. Do you remember that? Yes, there were a couple of times when the judge said that if they wanted to press that, they would have to take the governor to 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 court. Or, but there was no, she had no jurisdiction over any constitutional issues that might be involved. Judge Tamara Russell, I think she was a, an intern long ago in the Denver DA's office. Then she got involved. Out in your neck of the woods, Jeffco, well-respected district court judge. But I don't know, you were in the hearing. What did you think of the judge? And tell us how the case went and what do you think of the resolution? You know, I thought there's there's two ways of approaching that, I guess. Since I don't know the law very well, I thought she ran a very uh, um, disciplined courtroom. I thought that the presentation both by us and by the the other side was fair. I thought she asked some questions of me at the end that were well-informed and, and showed that she was very interested in the issue. I had no problems with that. There were some questions later that had come up from our attorneys saying that perhaps some of the questions that were raised were not as germane as they might have been to the case. But as far as I could see, I thought things went well. As far as the judgment, uh, the last day uh, on June 21, when we came in for the judgment, it was... Uh, July, it, July July 21, am I I'm right? Sorry, it's July, just yes. this week, right. July 21, I'm sorry, I misspoke That's there. That's all right. Yeah, it, it appeared to me, and again, I am not a scholar of the law, so I don't know exactly, but it appeared to me that she was a bit unhappy both with both sides. She was unhappy with their side in that they uh, attempt to raise the constitutional issues again. She was unhappy with us in that during the interim, we had passed a public health order that required any large events in Jefferson County, whether they are indoors or outdoors, to submit a plan so that we can review that and make sure that they are complying with the public health order that's put out by the state health department. And that was one of the issues that was, was being contested. And she basically felt that our moving that public health order had made her decision moot. So she was a bit upset uh, uh, at that point, I thought, with the way things had gone.
Tell us how you felt on July 4th. I heard you may have been riding a bicycle by Bandemir when we all saw the helicopters fly by and show a pretty crowded grandstand, especially toward the starting line. It caused me to go visit Bandemir, and it's an interesting situation. Tell us your perspective on the events of the 4th of July. Yeah, the 4th of July was, was the, the event that we were most concerned uh, in regards to, and that's why we had requested a temporary restraining order on July 2nd, which uh, essentially said that they must comply with the state's public health order with distancing and sizes of crowd and all of that. On July 4, my wife and I did ride our bikes by. There's a, a bike path, the, the C-470 bike path goes right by there. We rode by fairly early in the day, and as we rode by, I was actually very pleased because we stopped and looked, and it was obvious that people in the grandstands were in groups separated from other groups. Social distancing seemed to be being upheld. Of course, there were lots of trailers and things around so that it, we didn't see everybody that was there, but it looked like the spectators anyway were well keeping their distance from each other. So I was very pleased at that point. We had told the Bandemers, however, that we would have some of one of our staff or some of our staff there just to observe how things were going. And later in the day, as things got cooler and as the the event picked up and as they got closer and closer to the fireworks, more and more people did come in. I was no longer there, but our staff member was there and by that time, there was very little social distancing going on. Then when it rained, of course, everybody ran for cover, and there was absolutely no social distancing. So we that was one of our concerns was that at that point, none of the restrictions in the public health order were being complied with, or very few of them anyway. Now, your observers, you told the pandemic side they were going to be there, that just makes for good common sense. It was nice of you to tell them. I think it was Agent Rada. What is his formal title? Yeah, Mr. Rada is, he is actually our division director of environmental health services. Very well thought of, very experienced environmental health individual who has sort of been taking the lead on reviewing pens and looking at events. And we, we essentially had told told the management at Bandemir that uh, he would be there in an observing uh, capacity. Unfortunately, during the court case, it was characterized more as we were spying on them and that if we were there, why hadn't we taken over and, and ordered people to do things? That was not our intent at any point, and that is not what the law requires. The law requires that whoever is operating or owns the venue is supposed to make sure that uh, it is managed appropriately. And as I said, we had told them we'd be there as an observer, so it was not a spy as uh, in any way. Well, the only reason I know the director read his name is because on talk radio, I heard him referred to as a rat, a weasel, a spy. How do you feel about that? I think that is very, very, very sad. It totally is a mischaracterization of both him as an individual and what he was doing. He was basically there to to see how things were going. We have been working with Demir for 
for several, actually for over a month, as we've been looking at how do we respond to this this crisis. And it is one of the larger, if not the largest, venues in Jefferson County. So we were very concerned about the ability to comply with the the numbers that uh, that need to be limited as far as as that goes. So, did you make a statement that you felt like you had been duped by the people at Bandemir? I did say that in court. That uh, after the event, I felt that. Uh, some of the promises that had been made or claims that had been made to how things would be controlled, uh, that there was little evidence that they had been controlled, and I felt that I had been duped. you still feel that way? I, I, I still feel that if, let, let me put it this way, I feel that we are having a, or I did have and, and continue to work with the banner management to to help them understand that business as usual cannot continue under the the COVID nineteen pandemic that uh, that things must change that the public health orders require changes and that uh, doing things the way they have always done them will not meet the compliance so we're trying to work with figuring out how do we do that they are reaching out uh, to to a degree to try to do that, but I still feel that they may not completely understand or may not believe that this disease is serious enough that it calls for what we are asking for. Right. And on talk radio, Mr. Bandemir, the patriarch of the family, said that he thinks the pandemic is over, just like his attorney Randy Corcoran said. I went on the following Wednesday to Bandemir to see it for myself. I wrote a column about the situation in the Colorado Sun, and I talked to Sporty Bandemir, and he was great. Could not have been nicer, but I think he agrees with his dad. A lot of people do. A lot of people say it's overblown. It's a plot to get Trump out of office. It will disappear the second week of November. What's your response to that, Dr. Johnson? My response is that this is not over, that we are seeing uh, actually an acceleration of the infection again in both Jefferson County and Colorado and in the United States. I, of course, come from a different angle as a physician. I know more about what's going on in the hospital. I have a son-in-law who is a respiratory therapist who is involved in it on a daily basis. My daughter and wife are nurses who are involved on a daily basis in watching what is going on and seeing the devastation that can can occur. That, however, is in about 20% of the population who get sick are those who get hospitalized. So the 80% that most people outside of a hospital see could easily lead to the feeling that this isn't that bad a deal. I'm afraid it also has become very political, and whichever side of the aisle you live on or your ideology also tends to make you choose one side or the other as to how serious you think this is. The ideology of some of the ones that we have been working with around large events seems to fall on the, as you say, that spectrum of this is no big deal. Why do we have to do all of this? It's killing our business. Right. Speaking of politics, on talk radio, you've been characterized as anything from a big leb to a communist, that you're part of something called 
Deep Jeffco or Deep Colorado, and the guy pulling your strings is Jared Polis, who's part of it, and maybe Antifa as well. How do you plead? I, I, I plead ignorance. Um, <laughs> I I am a, a very uh, active in in I vote every time I have an opportunity. I try to keep up on what's going on with the issues. And being in government for over 30 years, I do work with the legislature and with elected officials on both sides of the aisle. I have always tried to make my decisions and our plans, at least for the, the health department, based on the science that we can find. And unfortunately, with a brand new novel virus with very little science, we're learning as we go. So things do change. Sometimes we have to make take two steps forward, one step backwards. But it has never been driven by politics as far as my response or our department's response to how we're dealing with this, this pandemic. Do you try to stay apolitical in doing your job? I have always tried to stay apolitical in doing my job, yes. Even with that admonition to yourself, and I'll give it to you as a lawyer, don't you have to say something about the poor leadership of Donald Trump when it comes to COVID? He won't even wear a mask before the time he visits Walter Reed, or do you want to stay away from that? I think I think the situation we find ourselves in in, in the United States shows that we have not responded nearly as well as we could have as a country. And I, I tend to, to be of the old, uh, I believe it was Harry Truman, that the, the buck stops at the top and that we have had a lack of leadership that has been helpful, at least in our attempt to respond to this, to this uh, epidemic. All of our training has been uh, predicated on the idea that if a if a situation like this arises, we will do what we can at the local level. If we need more resources, we'll reach to the state. If the state needs more resources, they will reach to the CDC and to the national stockpile. To then be told that uh, uh, the CDC is not available or the national stockpile is not available to us sort of undercut all of the planning and all of the exercises that we had done for 30 years in preparing for something like this and uh, been led uh, as uh, has been characterized all 50 states basically competing with each other to try to find both personal protective equipment and uh, and medications that were thought to be to be helpful so it uh, it has been the response has not been good for this country, and I think the leadership has to take some responsibility for that. Well, what candor. Let's talk about the path going forward. I have a senior-to-be, 17-year-old, contemplating high school. Should he go to school? Should he stay home? What do you see in the future? Give us some reason for hope. Well, I'm not sure school is the, is the best place to give a lot of hope because we still have a lot of questions about what goes on in school. As data from around the world shows, it appears that at least up to a certain age, maybe 10 or 12, that uh, children are not good transmitters of this disease, which is a, a, a hopeful sign. They also do not tend to get the disease as bad. They have uh, many more asymptomatic or non-symptomatic cases. 
And that is good news. I think that's good news uh, that we have also seen few hospitalizations. And in, in Jefferson County, we've seen no deaths under the age of 20. So that's all wonderful news. The, the confusion is at what age do kids start acting more like adults than kids? And so for a 17-year-old, I would say they probably both transmit and acquire the virus more like an adult, which does put them at more risk. And although it is true that about 95% of the deaths in uh, Jefferson County have been over the age of 60, we still have some very severe illnesses. And uh, I think if you just focus on deaths, you're missing a lot of the the economic and medical costs to society that happen uh, both in the hospital and in lot jobs and in uh, numerous other places. And we're also learning more and more that this virus seems to have long-term consequences in various organs, whether that's the heart or kidneys or liver or even the brain, that there are some long-term consequences that uh, that we are still learning about that may be with these people, even though they have a fairly light infection at this time, they may have consequences for, for years. So we're learning a lot. I think the the more hopeful side is what we're learning about a vaccine and possible treatments. I think that the fact that we uh, are seeing some really good antibody response to some of the vaccines that are being looked at, at least in the, the, the first phase of those, is great. If that can continue through the second and third phases of those studies, that is great news. We also now have good evidence that remdesivir, the antiviral drug, and dexamethasone can be very helpful in decreasing deaths in those who are hospitalized, those who are severely ill. I think we'll continue to find more and more drugs. We may end up with a, with a what they call a cocktail of drugs where three or four working together can really help decrease the, the severity of the disease. So I think that's one of the big reasons we're seeing less deaths now than we were seeing earlier on is that we have learned better how to treat patients who have it. So that's good news and and is hopeful. Dr. Johnson, I'm no medical doctor like you, but I wrote that column about coronavirus and Bandamere. And my observation of the situation is it's not unlike when you break a bone. Maybe you break your arm. The doctor says you need that cast on for six weeks, but then you start feeling good and it gets soggy and you peel it away after four weeks. A good mother takes you right back to the doctor to get recasted. Didn't we take the cast off too early? I mean, people were doing good. They were staying home. We were flattening the curve. Isn't that the problem? We we just took the cast off too soon. I, I think it's two things, and they both relate to taking the cast off too soon. I do think we, as uh, even in our state, I think we might have taken the cast off too soon, and clearly in some of the other states, they were taken off too soon. The other thing that sort of ties in with that is we had two large holidays, the Memorial Day and Fourth of July holidays, where I think people on their own took off the cast and uh, basically went against all or most of the advice that we had told them about social distancing and not gathering in large groups and those kinds of things. 
And I think those sort of three things have played together. The fact that we have opened up society, the fact that we have had people who have been been partying and gathering in, uh, you know, against the advice of, of uh, public health has really led us to where we are now with, a, with a, a peak even higher than the first one we saw in this wave. This pandemic has re- revealed a lot about the human condition. Deep down, do you think people are good? Do you think people want to help their fellow man and survive this by being unselfish? I guess what I would say, Craig, is I, I think 85 to 90 percent of the population are those who truly are trying to obey the rules, trying to do what is what what they have been told and what they believe is is true about this, and that they are doing things to try to make sure that they keep their children and their grandparents and their neighbors um, uh, from getting infected, that they're not passing it on. I think there are between 10 and 15 percent of the population that I would characterize as those who are more more selfish in the way they respond to things and that they are either lacking discipline or lacking care in how their activities might influence somebody else. And they they either really believe or they blame the fact that this really isn't a disease and so they don't need to be doing this. Or there, there seems to be a real fallback on this idea that you can't tell Americans no about anything. Americans can do whatever they want. And I think we have been very poor in explaining what the civic rules of a social contract are, and that if you are going to live around other people, you have limits on what you can do. There seems to be this strong attitude, at least among a very small portion of our of our society, that that I can do whatever I want and you can't tell me I can't. And that, I think, is part of what's continuing the spread of this disease. Jared Polis got frustrated and called them selfish bastards. Do you concur? My mother, were she still alive, would would not want me to use the second word, but yes, they are selfish. How is Governor Polis doing on this pandemic? You know, I think I think for the most part, I am very pleased with how he has responded. I think that he has tried to base all of his decisions and all of his executive orders on on the data, even though, as I mentioned earlier, there is a lack of data in a lot of things. He has truly tried to have a scientific approach to this, and that I I congratulate him on that. I think that uh, just personally, I think we possibly opened up a bit earlier than we might have, and I think there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure on him to do that. So I, I'm not sure I can blame him for that. But I think that if possible, most of us in public health would have said, let's not open up quite as early as, uh, as you are wishing to. In fact, the, the local health departments in the Denver metro region waited two more weeks, uh, and maybe we still opened up a bit too early. But uh, I have been very impressed with his use of the data, with his searching out uh, of data, looking at the different models, and trying to use those as he makes his decisions. So I think uh, I think he has done a great job. I think he has done as good or better a job than most of the other governors I have heard. I haven't agreed with all of his decisions, but I am very pleased with most of what he has done. I am very pleased to make your acquaintance, sir. You are well-spoken and provided a lot of good information that I will incorporate into my life. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate it. I wish you the best. You are welcome. Bye now. Let's talk about number two. Answer the phone. Talk to me about that. Do you answer the phone and why is that important? So I answer the phone when I have the ability to do so because I think it's important for people to be able to talk to me. It's amazing how many people call. I'm like, hello, this is Michael Bailey. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that you'd answer your phone. I thought I'd get a voicemail message or you know, a secretary or something. I'm like, no, I like answering my own phone when I can. Now, if I'm in the middle of talking to somebody else, then we go to number three, which is return your call- phone calls. Because sometimes I'm meeting with somebody, so I can't answer the phone because I can't talk to two people at once. It doesn't work that way. I do not have a forked tongue. But, you know, you answer the phone or you return phone calls so that you can talk to people and, you know, make sure that you're available for communication. I mean, it just it works a whole lot better for me when I can communicate with people and let them know what's going on or what we're doing or answer their questions. Time out, Michael. I cannot get past this forked tongue. I've never had that concept. Now I can't get it out of my head. Somebody who could somebody who could talk to two clients at the same time. No, you have to return your phone calls. And I know Michael Bailey. He will call you back that day. Pay your bills. I mean, it's really important for attorneys to keep their own house in order because we're trying to manage the affairs of others. Talk to us about that. Well, and paying your bills is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. You know, the, the company that I rent my office from, they want, you know, they, they're in business. They want to get paid. So I pay them. You know, I like having my office where, I mean, just before you called, my wife was here because she's off to do a real estate closing and she had to print everything out. And I have a big industrial printer here. Well, without that, she wouldn't have had time to, to print everything. So I want to pay my bills. And I want to make sure that I am in a spot where when I'm talking to people about how, you know, if we're talking about end of life and how are we going to preserve their money and how are we going to make it work and how are we going to, you know, protect assets? I'm like, well, you got to pay your bills. Otherwise, you're going to get creditors coming after you. So if my own financial house is in order, I can help other people. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Doggone you, Dave Gunders, my troubadour. This week's song, I Can't Get It Out of My Head, Deep Down. What a great song. Did you come up with that title first or the music? How do you remember it, Deep Down? Craig, Deep Down came to me as the phrase Deep Down. And then I thought, well, if I'm singing about something deep down, what is it? Well, Deep Down, a lot of times people say Deep Down, I, I, uh, they're revealing something that they don't necessarily want to admit. Deep down, I'm glad I did it. And so that's how that song came about. That's what I can't get out of my head. Deep down, I'm glad I did it. See, now you got me singing. Nobody wants to hear that. Well, you can put on on some Beatles or something, Craig. You'll enjoy that. And it'll drive deep down. It'll drive deep down right out of your head. Put Put on, you know, Eleanor Rigby. That'll do it. Do you have musical tricks like that? Have you really done that? Used music to get one song out of your head? Oh, well, that's easy to do. Yeah, try it sometimes. But yeah, sometimes... But now I, have, now I have Eleanor Rigby bouncing around my <laughs> brain when I'm trying to talk to you. Well, at, at least it, 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 you can't go wrong with the Beatles. Go ahead with Eleanor Rigby. But anyway, Deep Down was a fun song, and I, I, 
And it basically is, you know, it, it takes on the idea that, you know, so, sometimes life is more fun when you break the rules or bend the rules. Speaking of which, we go on walks with considerable frequency. We like to explore our neighborhood and we feel entitled to really go just about anywhere. We don't want to intrude on privacy, but how do you feel when you see a fence? <laughs> well, two, I, I feel two things. One is, is there a way under? And then the other is, is there a way over? I guess three things. There could be a way around. But my point being, and you're with me, Craig Silverman, let's go ahead and get into whatever that fence is trying to enclose and, and make our mark. Not to do anything wrong there. I pick up after my puppy. Do you remember when we broke in to clean up a mess my dog had made days before? Well, I I, I prefer to think of it as just in, inviting ourselves into a party that our own, our own private party. But you, and did, you, talk, you cleaned up you cleaned up your dog your dog's mess, and I and I commend you for that. Do you remember which dog? Which dog? Oh, that would have been um, that would have been Skyler. No, Ico was ahead. recovering from a bad hamstring. Ico was recovering. It was Skyler, but sometimes you call him a cruel nickname, and it bothers him and me as the owner. The tough one. The harsh name for Skyler when he runs away and he won't come back. Mothbrain. Nothing personal. Mothbrain. Well, because he has a very he has a very unique way of, of bounding around, and that is aimless. He goes around with no particular direction. He's just running free. It's not that's really all that not not that terrible thing to to uh, to pin on him, Craig. He's a, he's he's going out. He's having his his joy. That's what dogs do. Right, and when his ears are flopping, it is sort of moth like, right? It it is moth like because he has no direction. He has no direction. I still, I, I still, as his owner and friend, his best friend, I, I can't have you insult him like that. Have I, have I ever called any of your dogs by bad names, Heidi or Riley? Have I ever said a harsh word to them, called them a name? No, but you're a more refined individual. That's true. Let's get back to this song. I have a lot to learn. That's why we take walks together. Right, and you are a scofflaw. And I'm a lawyer. We're complete opposites. You just, your song is a confession, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is confession. I, I was once actually, I was once told I was a scofflaw by a, a judge who peered over his reading glasses and said, you're a scofflaw. At that point, I was riding my motorcycle way too fast and, too, and, and, and getting too many tickets. And he was right. But I had to go home and actually look up the word. I had never heard of it. Lies didn't blink an eye. Sorry, judge. I guess I should apologize, but I didn't know that old fishing hole sitting out private land. Could you give me back my pole? And if you do, you'll never see me again. That trout frying in the pan That's why I'm telling you, my friend Deep down, I'm glad I did it Deep down, I'm 
you What could I do Anything to get a little closer For a better view Cause I had never seen my dreams I knew I'd do anything to get you to notice me So I pulled that silly back trick on your lawn Thought I saw you running in the sun And I crashed that old red bike and I was As I hit the tree first verse, Dave Gunders. Well, I've told lies. Didn't blink an eye. Sorry, Judge. I guess I should apologize. That's a beauty. Who are you thinking about? Yourself? Well, that, that imagery could have come from my, my, my very young high school days when, when my, my first girlfriend and I were caught skinny dipping in Stamford Reservoir in Connecticut and actually taken down to the police station. What are you saying about skinny dipping with a girl? Who was this? Where? When? Well, there's one of those fences that we had, we had climbed over. I think there may have been some posting, something like, you know, no swimming allowed. And so in addition to swimming, we were swimming in the, in the raw. And sure enough, the cops came. I'm sure they were thrilled to, to, to see my girlfriend, you know, come out of the water naked. But they took us down and the father's came and they bailed us out. I remember her father had been on the golf course. He wasn't happy. As is true in a lot of your songs, Dave Gunders, Troubadour for my show, there's a love story. Is this the same girl you went skinny dipping with? And I love that line. I saw you. What could I do? 
that's that's all from from that time now now i have a beautiful wife and and i have other songs about her i know it but my goodness your past your past troubadour what a past this was my past this was my past I'm curious, being a criminal defense attorney, did you really commit a hit and run with a bicycle damaging some property on the lawn? What is that lyric about? Gone, gone, gone. No, no, no. That was there was no hit and run. It was just myself doing damage when I hit the tree. But but I think I was just that was kind of a creation. That was I don't remember actually crashing my bike to impress her. But uh, that's just to kind of, you know, provide enmity to a song. I like the idea of a kid showing off for a girl he's trying to impress to the point where he doesn't even watch where he's going and rides his bike into a tree. Knocks himself out, by the way, in the song. That's right. What a great song. What a creative mind you have, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Can't wait for our walks this week because it could cool down a little. See you on the trail, my friend. You're the one with the creative mind, Craig, and that's why we enjoy listening to you. Because you you have a lot of uh, you have you have a lot of perspective on things, and you oftentimes have have a surprising take on on the events of the day. I really appreciate your your analysis of the news, of politics, and everything like that. It's always independent and fresh. Thank you, Troubadour. God bless you for saying that. Talk to you All later, righty. my take friend care. Dave Gunder, my Troubadour. Bye bye. Wow, sales is a challenge for all companies, especially during these pandemic times. Have you heard of the sales training program? Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. While other sales training shows you how to play the game better, Sandler teaches you how to break the rules, change the game, and avoid common sales problems altogether. And I have some great news for listeners to my show. It just so happens that one of my best buddies in the world since we were teenagers is Dan Levitt. Dan is an expert in this Sandler methodology and exclusive to my show each week, Dan's going to share one of 49 Sandler training tips with you at absolutely no charge. So please listen closely. Here comes a sales tip that just might push you over the finish line with that giant sales opportunity you are working on. Take Take it away, Dan. Hey, thanks, Craig. The sales tip of the week is you can't sell anybody anything. They must discover they want it. Craig, many salespeople push their products. They push their ideas on people who don't need them. Sometimes just out of manipulation or brute force, the salesperson gets away with it. But here's what happens. They cancel because they realize, I really didn't need that. People don't want to buy things they don't need. They're not going to buy because of a hard sell, right? We know that. That world is hard for the salesperson and very uncomfortable to the prospect. And what a waste of time. You're spending time on a prospect who's only going to be disappointed. That's why the hard sell doesn't work. That's why you should get tips from Dan Levitt. If you are interested in increasing win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, if you'd like to address sales manager professional development needs, reduce turnover of sales personnel, increase customer retention and upsell opportunities, develop a common sales language and process, and have a more accurate forecast through a clean sales funnel. The guy to call is Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107, and tell him Craig sent you. 
Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Next up is former Republican Congressman John LeBoutlier. He's a former congressman. He's not a former Republican. He wants his party back. He represented Nassau County in the U.S. Congress. He's aware of Donald Trump. They've met many times being New Yorkers. But I wanted to talk to him about the media, Fox News, talk radio, and what's going on in this Trump era. I don't like these Trump police, secret police on the streets of our city. Do you? John LeBoutlier does not. I got to know him a little better when he called me at home after he was on my show several years ago. First, I wondered how he found my home number, but he's a former congressman. Maybe he has connections. Anyway, he called and he said, I want to tell you about your producer, Kirk Wedland, and what he said to me and how inappropriate it was. And once again, I thought, well, that's just mega mega Kirk Wedland. I didn't realize that Salem had inflicted this apparent neo-Nazi on me. John LeBoutlier remembers the situation well. We talk about it at the end of this conversation. Enjoy. John LeBoutlier, my special guest, he's a congressman who served in New York. He's from Long Island. He served the good people of Nassau County. You've seen him on Fox News for years, on Political Insiders. John LeBoutlier, welcome back to my show. You have such expertise on Fox News having worked there. Tell us about the place and what years you got involved over there. Started in 2011 and made it till the week after Trump was elected in 2016. So five and a half years about. Are those two events related? I don't know because they took the show off after one Sunday after the election. We were not our three of us, which is Doug Schoen, Pat Cadell, and myself. Pat was advising Trump and was pro-Trump. I praised Trump when he deserved it, criticized him when he deserved it. This is all before the before he's elected. Doug came out and rebuked Hillary and said, I'm voting for Trump. So why they took us off, we don't really know, other than we were created by yours truly. I, I created the show and got Roger Ailes to put it on. And Roger Ailes got fired in August before the November election. And after the election, when they got rid of us, it's conceivable. It's because we were, you know, somewhat tied to the Ailes era and they wanted to clean it out after the election. So I don't wow. you know. I, 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 well, we wish we were on. Pat Cadell died a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And Doug and I talk all the time. And we'd like to get back on somewhere and do political insiders. And you never know. It may happen. What's the latest on Doug Schoen? Is he a backing Trump or is he on the Biden no. bandwagon? Well, he doesn't really dig Biden, but he hates Trump. So he is not in any way supporting Trump. But he was the pollster for Mike Bloomberg. So he left right. Fox, you know, that you can't be on Fox if you're working in a campaign. So they canceled his contract last fall when Bloomberg got geared up. He was a long-running advisor to Bloomberg who ran a terrible campaign, as we know. We saw. Yeah. And when it was over in whatever month that was, March, I guess, or April, Fox never brought Doug back. So he's a free agent, and he's sequestering himself to stay away from the virus 
down in Florida. Yes, and the late Pat Cadell. Did he ever have a reckoning with Donald Trump before he died, or did he die too soon to see Charlottesville, Helsinki, the Ukrainian shakedown, and this COVID disaster? Well, he died. That's a good question, Craig. He died in February 2019. So yes to Charlottesville, yes to Helsinki, no to the COVID. And that Ukrainian shakedown, the impeachment. He did not live to see that. He did not live to see any of it. He 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 didn't. You know, Pat had been a uh, aide to Biden years ago, so he knew Biden very well. And I I don't think he was crazy about him I, because Pat liked anti-establishment candidates, and Joe Biden basically is the establishment, certainly of the Democratic Party, and Pat probably would not be happy with, with that. But Pat had left the Democrats a long time ago, become an independent. Right. He worked for Mondale, right? He was campaign manager for Mondale. Well, no, 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 no. It, well, I no. apologize. Yeah, no. What, what, Pat Cadell's history is pretty good. He's a Harvard student. He's already polling as a Harvard student, you know, undergraduate. He's doing polls for candidates around the country in 71. 1971, when he gets a phone call from a guy who says, we might want to hire you for a big job, go down to Miami, go to the airport, go to gate six, I'm making it up, but, and someone's going to meet you there to interview you. And so Pat goes down there, and this long-haired guy meets him, sits down in a coffee shop in the airport, interviews him for half an hour, and then says, okay, we want to hire you to be George McGovern's campaign pollster. And the guy doing the interview is Gary Hart, who ran the campaign. From Colorado. No, he's actually from Kansas. Then he moved to Colorado. Right. right. So anyway, so Pat had a, a year left at Harvard, but he's at Harvard running the polling for McGovern all that year. Obviously, McGovern ends up losing big to Nixon, but Pat Cadell was sort of a star uh, from the whole thing. And sitting in Georgia watching this is Jimmy Carter. And he says to Hamilton Jordan, we got to get that guy on our team. So they go and they hire Pat Cadell in 73. And Pat joins the Carter team. And in 76, again, he's a pollster for an outsider running for the nomination. This time, Jimmy Carter, who obviously mm -hmm. wins and becomes president. And Pat, at 27 years old, was the senior White House advisor for Jimmy Carter. Wow. Yeah. And then he worked for Mondale, right? Eventually. Eventually he did. He, he wasn't crazy about him, but he did work for him. And then that was 80, yeah, 84. And, and then he ended up appearing at the Western Conservative Summit here in Denver, Colorado. And I know because because I used to be a Democrat, I was called on to introduce him once. So I made his acquaintance, but John LeBoutlier, I want to know about you. Who were your political heroes growing up in Nassau County? Well, I grew up here and I went away to boarding school and college. None of my, no one locally was here political hero of mine. I, the book that turned me on to politics, Craig, 
believe it or not. I can remember it like it's two seconds ago. I'm lying on my bed every day in Kirkland House at Harvard, the dorm that I lived in, reading William Sapphire's book called Before the Fall. And it meant before the fall of Nixon in Watergate. It's about the first four years of the Nixon presidency with a White House staff that's never been equaled with advisors in the White House like Pat Moynihan, Arthur Burns, George Schultz, Cap Weinberger. uh, And, and of course, the speechwriting staff was fantastic with Sapphire, Pat Buchanan, Ray Price. And the book was all about how the White House worked under Nixon. And that really turned me on. I, I just it just and I got into my first campaign at that period of time for a guy who had been a prisoner of war in Vietnam and came home and announced that he was going to run for the U.S. Senate in South Dakota against George McGovern. And I read this as a freshman at Harvard. I said, I have got to be a part of that. And I moved to South Dakota, became the national finance chairman at 21 years of age. Wow. What part of South Dakota? The Colorado part in Rapid City? Oh, you were in the Midwest, right. Sioux Falls. I lived in a trailer with the press secretary in Sioux Falls, and I just loved it. I loved everything about it. And, you know, the campaign, we didn't end up winning, but it was, we won the nomination, but not the general, but it was great. Well, you've been in politics ever since. You are a political pundit. You were a Republican congressman. But I want to talk to you about the media. First of all, Roger Ailes, you pitched him on this show. He put you on the air. What was the guy like? I'm sure you've seen the movies and read the articles, but you knew Roger Ailes. He goes He goes back to the Nixon era as well. Correct. I I first myself first met him in 1980 when he was a TV producer and I was a regular sort of regular guest on Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show. Love that show. Remember that? How many how many cigarettes would he smoke each show? He never stopped smoking. He smoked the whole time. Right. He was it was unbelievable. But he was a good interviewer and it was a laid back pace. Yeah, and and the sh- I was on the show in L.A., and then I get elected, and the show has moved to New York, and it's struggling. And next thing I know, I'm in there, and a guy comes up to me, and it's Roger Ailes. This is 1981 now. And he says, and he was brought in as what they call a show doctor. The show's not doing well, and it needs to be fixed and healed up, so to speak. And a show doctor is a producer who can fix the show. And so that's where I first met Roger. And we were friends for a long time. I never knew any of this horrible stuff that he's been accused of and I think credibly accused of towards women. But, I mean, he wouldn't do it to me because I'm not a woman. So I didn't know. But No, you're a big strapping man, but forget about this sexual antics, which seem to be horrible at Fox News. And we heard about allegations against Carlson Hannity and Ed Henry, who seems to be a serial offender if you read page six. But I'm more concerned about them selling America out and buying everything that Trump wants to sell. What's going on there? Why are they so in bed with Donald Trump? even with Roger Ailes gone? 
I think it's uh, Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch sort of made some sort of bargain with Trump, and they help each other. It's the only president Murdoch's ever known and had access to. It's been credibly reported that, you know, he never thought anything of Trump. He thought Trump was a twit, frankly. But he's the president, and that means he can do a lot of things. And, you know, right up till now, I would say that Trump has some control over Fox. He calls up segment producers, Craig, after he sees a segment. He's president of the United States. He's not the president of Fox. And he'll he'll call up a producer and congratulate them on the segment. This is the amount of meddling Trump does into Fox to get them to do what he wants them to do, which they certainly do. And if Trump goes down, as I think he will, quite big in November, Fox is going to have some major decisions to make afterwards because they, in my view, they can't keep going the way they are. They they have no credibility. They become a propaganda network, not a news network. Can't the same be said about the Republicans in Congress? I mean, who's going to be left standing if, God willing, Donald Trump gets shellacked this coming election? Who will emerge as Republican leaders? You're a Republican. What about you, John LeBoutlier? Well, I... I've talked to other former Congress people about uh, exactly what's going to happen. If, if they lose not only the presidency and still lose the House and also lose the Senate, that, that will be a wipeout, which is a wipeout due to Trumpism, not just Trump himself, but it's his positions on the issues, the anti-immigrant status, the anti of people of color, the lack of tolerance, the mean meanness of the whole thing. That's now spread all over the Republican Party with hardly any exceptions. And I think they're going to get severely rebuked by the voter in November. And when that happens, the Republican Party is either going to go down the toilet forever because of Trumpism and they don't shake it off, or they are going to remake themselves into a modern-day political party, a big tent. You can be conservative on issues, but you don't have to be intolerant of people because they're different than us. They're voters. We should be trying to get voters to vote for us. Welcome to politics. That's what the whole, whole deal is. But that's old-time politics. This president's going to cheat to win and I'm worried what he's capable of, John LeBoutlier. He's putting troops in our cities, secret police. What would you do if you were in Congress? Would you react to that? I, well, I, not only would I speak out against it, I would try to find a way to, and I haven't heard this happening, but I would think it's got to happen, which is Congress controls the purse strings. There's only two months left in this fiscal year. So uh, uh, I think someone ought to be telling Bill Barr and Homeland Security and Trump, you go through with dispatching these stormtrooper Gestapo people to the cities. In a couple of months, you're not going to have the money to do it because we're not going to uh, pass it. And we're, we're going to penalize you by taking other money out of the budget, too. They've got to do something to stop Trump. And 
talking about it is one thing, but there is power in money. You know, Congress controls the money. Uh, They do. But for four months, he's going to cheat in every way possible. And you, it's good to talk about these things. What's your history with talk radio? You've done a ton of it. Tell us about your history and the current state of talk radio in America. Well, I'm a big listener over the years. I've listened all my life to, to, to radio and mostly talk radio. AM talk radio, sadly, is dying in America. And I don't know quite why, but it is. And I'm sure you're aware of it in your life in Colorado. And It may be dying, but there are death rattles that can hurt us all. Because Salem, where I was employed... I thought it was the moderate talk radio channel. Big backers of Mitt Romney, fiscally conservative, but with hosts like Dennis Prager and Hugh Hewitt and Michael Medved. I thought when I joined that organization that this is a moderate middle ground place, but it's something different now. Have you made that observation? Oh, it's gone. It's Craig, you know what it is? Fox has done it. And talk radio and like Salem, they've become alt-right. Conservatism has been replaced by the alt-right. For your listeners who don't know, alt-right is alternative right. It's the far radical right. I think of them as nutbags. And the nutbags have taken over. They are the talk radio hosts. They are. Hugh Hewitt, Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager, nutbags. Well, I, I think Hugh Hewitt's become all right. I, I don't think Michael Medved has, but. Well, he got fired. I was told by a Salem top executive, Phil Boyce, hey, there's a Medved rule, and Michael Medved's contract was not renewed. But Dennis Prager, who I always thought would be in the moderate middle, he seems to be all in with Donald Trump as well. I don't know if it's that relief factor advertising or what it is. And then, of course, the local Salem hosts, Alt-Right, does describe it. What's going on with the, with a company like that? Oh, I, I, by the way, I've had it in for years with this Phil Boyce when he was running WABC in New York. I, I found him to be duplicitous and dishonest. And when he took over Salem, I thought, oh, boy. And he and Trump were a marriage made in in heaven for them. (laughs) But, you know, it isn't going to last. It's not going to work. And so on on just a a big picture for a minute, obviously, the king of all time of AM talk radio, especially political talk, is Rush Limbaugh. Right. Rush is in decline. Rush is not well. He's got lung cancer. He is brought it up on his show himself that he may not be able to continue. And I see coming three events in rapid succession. Trump is going to be defeated. Rush Limbaugh is going to leave the air. And Rupert Murdoch is going to surrender, either sell Fox, turn it over to his sons. He's 89. It cannot last much longer. But those three guys, you get rid of Trump, you take Rush off the air, and Murdoch lets Fox go somehow. And the whole alt-right thing will get clamped down on fast, which it should be. Speaking of alt-right, John LeBoutlier was on my radio show on a Salem affiliate, 710KNUS. I had been assigned a producer named Kirk Whitland. 
I did an interview with John LeBoutlier, who you can hear is a tremendous guest, and he's outspoken in his disregard for Donald Trump. And something you said set off Woodland. Well, you tell it, John, because I was shocked when you found a way to call me at my home later that day and tell me what happened. But tell everybody what happened. Well, when when when, when I'm a, when someone like me is a guest on a radio show like yours, I don't call you or you don't call me. The producer contacts me, and we talk a little bit. Then he puts me on hold, patches me through to you, Craig, and then off we go on the air. So as I remember, that happened that day. But during the time I talked to him, he started getting a little nasty to me. And then I did the show. I didn't pull any punches on Trump, just like I haven't in this show. And when I was finished with you, he comes back on the phone and unloads on me and gives me a really hard time about my positions. And I, I remember I was thinking, who the hell is this producer to be criticizing me? I mean, really? And, and is he speaking for Craig, which I didn't think he was? So I, I then called you up, which I've never done, ever, in all my years of being on radio. Never would I call a host up to complain about anything. But I had to let you know what this guy had done to me because it's so unprofessional. I'm a guest. You invited me on your show that time. And this guy's insulting me. And was he was horrible. And so here we are. <laughs> wow. What a story. Thanks for sharing that. John LeBoutlier, you've been so generous with your time. I hope we can call on you in the future. And I think you are part of what's right with what remains of the Republican Party. And I hope they involve you in its restoration because America needs two strong political parties. Am I right? Uh, yeah. And you need you, you are right, Craig. And you need two strong parties to check each other and to keep a balance in the country. When one party is very powerful, and therefore the other one is weak, the system doesn't work well. It only works well when they check each other. And Republicans are, are headed down right now in a big way, but maybe in the long run, they'll come back a better party with a more responsible leaders than we have now. Well, you're the best. Thanks, John. Thank Talk you, to you Craig. soon. Love talking to you. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303 303- 829-2107 and tell them Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Dan Levitt, 303 303- 829-2107, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107, Sandler Training, it could really help you. Thank you, Danny Levitt.
Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Now back to Nedra Downing, mother of the late Tom Holler, talking about how the murder 27 years ago on the streets of Denver, central Denver, of her beautiful son, Tom Holler, affected her and her family and her politics. Tell me about politics these days. You are in the battleground state of Michigan. I'm here in Colorado. I don't think Trump has a chance to win here. But will he win in Michigan? Will he get your vote? There is nobody to vote for in the next election. Biden used the power of vice presidency to get the prosecutor fired who was going to investigate his son in the Ukraine, in the Burisma matter. And that was totally improper that Biden would do that. And you can't vote for Trump. I mean, Trump is horrible. He doesn't know how to be president. Uh, he has hurt us uh, internationally. On the other hand, he has created jobs, and that's an important thing. Nedra, let me ask you, as a doctor who has treated thousands of patients, what do you see that's going on with Donald Trump? With Donald Trump? Yes. Physically, mentally, aren't you into a holistic analysis of president? I know you always look at me and you say, boy, you put on a couple pounds or you've taken some off. You kind of judge my mental, you judge my mental acuity every time we talk. So when you watch Donald Trump as, as a doctor, what do you see? Well, he's, he's too fat for one, and he's obviously self-indulgent. He's not a person you can like, and his hair is horrible. I mean, to have his hair bleached and styled in that fashion. I mean, there's nothing about him that you can really admire, except that he was a successful businessman, and uh, he didn't have to become president and take all the abuse. But now he seems to like the power, and so he's going to run again. But I don't know about his health. I'm not aware that he has physical problems other than being overweight and self-indulgent. What about COVID? Let me turn your attention there, Nedra, if I could. I picked your brain when I asked if you would do this interview and you offered me some wisdom. I'll put it the same way to you. What should I do to protect myself and my family? What are you doing for your family? Well, of course, we're trying to wear masks, but it has to be a, a good mask. I can't have pores in it like simple cotton masks won't work. It has to be an amorphous material or something without pores. So masks are probably a good idea if they're a good mask, but not all masks are the same. The coronavirus has some concordance with a common cold and with uh, ordinary flu. So I use several remedies that are widely available against the common cold, which frequently is a form of coronavirus, and uh, the ordinary uh, flu, influenza. So the remedies that I use are available at health food stores. One is called Acillo, Acillococcinum, and that one has helped me in the past to ward off a cold. And I have also used another remedy. These are home. How do you, how do you spell Acillo? O-S-C-I-L-L-O, 
C-O-C-C-I-N-U-M, acylococcinum. It's available in health food stores. If any health food store would know what it is, you walk in the door and they've got a display. The other remedy I use is called Influenzium, I-N-F-L-U-E-N-Z-E-U-M. It's a common remedy and it's available. And the reason I use it is that there is some similarity in the coronavirus and an ordinary flu virus. So it may or may not work, but that's what I do. Plus a lot of vitamin D. You have to do vitamin D3 and you want your vitamin D3 level up around above 60 nanograms per milliliter on a lab test. And I think that along with vitamin C, that's probably the best prevention that I know of. Dr. Nedra Downing, tell us your credentials. How is it you've developed this opinion? Do you have an education? Do you have experience? What's your background? Well, I have a master's degree in human nutrition, and I'm a doctor of osteopathic medicine. I practiced and ran a successful clinic uh, for 20 years with thousands of patients, and I practiced nutritional and environmental medicine tried to get people off prescriptions and have them do natural things to help them stay well or get well. So the whole thrust was to use natural remedies. So that's what I'm still doing. Wow. And how would you rate President Trump's response to this pandemic? He should have done more. I think social distancing and staying home are Hard to do, but probably the best. And uh, wearing masks in public, good masks, is important. And I don't think Trump came up with any kind of a plan or any major orders. He left everything to the states. You know, I took one adventure into politics of a sort. I ran for Denver DA, and my campaign slogan was, politics and prosecution are a very poor mix. I ran against the incumbent Democrat, Bill Ritter, and I had a press conference with Dr. Nedra Downing by my side, announcing that I supported capital punishment. My opponent did not. This was 1996. You got involved in my campaign, Nedra. I'll never forget it. We did it at the Oxford Hotel, your favorite place to stay. Tell everybody why you got involved with a guy like me when I was trying to become Well, uh, you did such an outstanding job. You did your homework. You really worked hard to get dig up all those details to present a case where the two perpetrators, the two murderers of my son got convicted. And I remember one thing, uh, you actually went to the neighborhood where the uh, two young men lived in North Denver and played basketball out on the street, risking your own life to become one of the boys to try to get them to talk and give you some evidence. But it was a daily grind. I mean, it was a daily thing where you had to have everything all worked out. And you must have stayed up till the wee hours of the morning going over all those details of the baseball cap left in the back of the car and the gas station where the two men tried to pick up uh, a young woman 
who thirty second and Colorado Boulevard. Right. Um, yes. I, I won't forget that. Or officers Lombardi and Hartvigson rescuing Christina, who was naked. She looked like she was dead. The officers were startled when she moved. Her life was rescued. And let's tell everybody that Christina has had a beautiful life. I mean, it was the worst thing in the world that's happened to her. But your son, Tom, found one of the most wonderful women in the world. And she's found another beautiful guy to marry and have beautiful children. And my gosh, I have to believe that's what Tom would have wanted. That's what I would have wanted for my wife, right? Yes. A medium at the time of the murder said that he said to Christina, find somebody wonderful and have a good life. I want to say one more thing about the Denver police. When they found Tom murdered and bleeding dead on the street, or he bled to death on the street, they took their cars up to North Denver, and the sound of the police cars saved Christina's life. The two men in the car knew the sound of the police cars. When they turned, they saw some flash in an alley where the car was that had Christina. That was a, She was about to get raped, but they did not rape her. So the police thought they saw something, and they squealed their ears and turned, and the two men knew that it was a police car, so they fled. And that saved Christina's life. Uh, God bless the Denver police. God bless them. And I worked with them for 16 years. And you saw what they did with a member of your family. And Nedra Downing, I think about you on this stage, July 23rd. I can't believe you've been so generous with your time. Will you indulge me for just a little more conversation? I wanted to tell you one thing about Joe Biden, okay? And I'm no big Joe Biden fan, and I'm not a Democrat, but I am your favorite prosecutor, am I not? Absolutely. Okay, I'm here to tell you that that guy that they got rid of in Ukraine, he was corrupt, and he was on the take from Russia, and it looks bad for Hunter Biden to make all that money, and there is nepotism involved, but that prosecutor... The whole European Union recognized him as a Putin puppet. So I just think that there are other reasons you might not want to vote for Joe Biden. But take it from your favorite prosecutor. I've looked into that one. And it came out a lot during the impeachment. Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador, did you watch her testify? No, but I know who she is. You would like her because she was a smart woman dedicated to her profession And she stood up for her principles. And I know there are a lot of people who buy that story. And it sounds good on the surface because, of course, the son did get a sweetheart job. But I'm telling you, that prosecutor was bad news. You would not want him running anything. And the people of Ukraine needed him out of there. He was corrupt. And you you told me you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because you thought she was too corrupt. I agree. I thought she was in bed too much with foreign interests through the the Clinton uh, Foundation and all that crap. So uh, we're we're not that far apart. And the other thing I just suggest about Trump being a successful businessman, I don't know, he went bankrupt five times. And uh, some people say he's being propped up by foreign money now. 
Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson's great book, Plaintiff in Chief. I, I read all these books about Donald Trump, including, you know, I love golf, Commander in Chief by a Denver author named Rick Riley. Anyway, I, uh, are you going to vote? You said you don't like either of them. So what do you do? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'll probably keep drawing in information and lean whichever way it seems the best. In fact, I wish, I can't think of his name, the general. Which general? Uh, general Mattis? I love yes, Mad Dog Mattis. Oh, me too. But did you read what Mad Dog Mattis wrote in the Atlantic, Nedra? I didn't, but... Uh, he, he wrote that he, he, there's never been a, pre, a president who was deliberately divisive like this, trying to tear people apart. And the paragraph above that, you are a great writer, he said that was a Nazi tactic to divide and conquer. And that's what I'm seeing on the streets of Denver with schmageggies from both sides, you know, doing things that most of us in the middle just don't want happening. We have a pandemic to deal with. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Tom always had a smile on his face. I've met so many of his friends, like Christian Bear. He and I stay in touch. He was there when Tom got shot and cradled him at the end. And I know he'll be tearing up when he hears this. What do you want to say to Tom's friends and his family? You are his mother. And uh, what do you want to say to the people of Colorado? Tom always said, have fun. And I would say that. Have fun and be well. What kind of law do we practice at Springer and Steinberg? Almost everything. If we don't know how to do it, I'm pretty sure I can find you the right lawyer here in Colorado. My number, 303-861-2800. I handle a variety of cases. A lot of personal entry, motor vehicle crashes, truck wrecks, but other situations where people get hurt through no fault of their own. I am there to help. I like doing that. I also do some criminal defense. This law firm is renowned for its ability to defend people accused of crimes, protect their constitutional rights. But on the civil side, we have amazing results. I'd love to show them to you. Give me a call, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800, or find me at springersteinberg.com. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Michael Bailey, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current affairs. We go into a lot of other people's homes as part of being a lawyer. Sometimes they come to our office, but in this pandemic era, you will really meet them anywhere, won't you? Yep. I will meet them at their house. I'll meet them at my office. I'll meet them over the phone. I'll meet them via Zoom and video conference, however they're most comfortable with. Michael Bailey, I'm an experienced older lawyer. I have chosen the route of being a Colorado trial lawyer, but there are different kinds of attorneys and you've chosen a different path. If you do your job well, do your clients go to court? Only ancillarily. So when you have when you have a will, 
and you know, somebody dies and you take you take the will to the probate court but if you set it up you can do it so it's more of like an administrative proceeding where you just check in but you don't have to go do a full trial or appear in front of a judge or anything like that if i do my job properly then hopefully nobody ends up in court sad to say michael bailey but we all have to be thinking about our own mortality end of life decisions are so difficult if god forbid you are laying there on a ventilator and your family is not even around Isn't that more of a reason why you need some legal help and some medical directives that can control your fate? Well, you want to do things before the crisis hits, because when the crisis hits, it's too late to plan. So you plan before the crisis so that when a crisis hits, it's less of a crisis and more of a just carrying out your plan. God forbid the crisis hits. End of life situations are very difficult. Families can also be complicated. I would imagine confidentiality is a big thing talking to you as a lawyer. Suppose you have five kids and you have to speak candidly about maybe one or two that you want to disfavor with regard to inheritance. Are you good at listening to that kind of stuff and giving advice? Yes. I mean, one of the big things that I do is I listen because your estate plan needs to be personalized and doing what you want. I can make sure that we set it up within the framework of the laws and how they work. We want to make sure that your wishes are carried out, whether they're the same as everybody else's wishes or they're just your wishes. We want your wishes to be carried out, not what everybody else has to say. It gets complicated with life insurance and whatnot. How do you make sure that your clients uh, realize their benefits from life insurance and more specifically, the beneficiaries get all that's coming to them? So as part of what we do, I will make sure I go through, hey, you need your beneficiary designations to be what, you know, to coordinate with the estate plan so that they work together. And I will encourage my clients to check their beneficiary designations and to make sure that everything's going the same direction. So they're not, um, to just, so that they're not confusing one another or, you know, contradicting one another and creating issues. Michael Bailey, welcome back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. You can see we have the TV set up. We're ready for the Rockies and the Nuggets. What are you more excited about, basketball or baseball, or are you waiting for football? I'm probably waiting for football, but I'm more excited about basketball because I enjoy watching basketball more than baseball. That's because you are a big man. How tall are you, 6'5"? 6'4", sometimes you round up to 6'5", but somewhere around 6'4". I can't wait for the entertainment part of life to resume. I hope things get back to normal. Do you find a lot of people thinking about end of life now? What do you tell people when they call? Are they worried? Some people are very worried. Most people, I give them my standard line of, hey, you know what? I would love to do your estate plan, and then I don't want you to use it for the next several decades so that it's in place, but so that we're not using it anytime soon because I don't want you to die. So... What number should people call to reach Michael Bailey? And will you answer the phone? So my phone number is 720-394-6887. That's 720-394-6887. And if I'm not talking to somebody else or in another appointment, I will answer the phone myself. Yes. Are you going to slough anybody off on a junior associate or a paralegal? Or will you handle matters yourself? I handle matters myself. If I'm I'm asking you for something like a copy of a deed, my paralegal may send you an email saying, hey, can you 
send me that. But other than that, I do. You do all the heavy lifting. You are the attorney for not only me, but my wife. My wife likes you a lot. She trusts you. You charge reasonable price. You will come to people. You will do it over technology. I think you've got it figured out. Once more about medical directives. When we were going through our end of life planning, you asked all the right questions. Tell us how you go through that with a client. So I will sit down with the client and I'll go through and explain why you need a medical directive, what it is, what it's for. And you know, we'll have a discussion about who you trust to make your medical decisions for you. And then we can put those, you know, we, we designate that person in a medical power of attorney. And then in a medical directive, if there's things that you feel really strongly about, like there are certain religious groups who don't want blood transfusions or like, okay, well, we'll write that in so that that's not up to somebody else to decide. But you have somebody who's your trusted person to decide for you, and then you know also your directions of what you do or do not want done. And you put that all in place, again, before a crisis hits so that it can just be carried out. Michael Bailey, thank you for spending more time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I really appreciate your friendship, your sponsorship, you being my attorney. If you go to my podcast webpage, you can find more information on Michael Bailey. Give out your number one more time and how people can reach you. Sure. It's 720-394-6887. Please feel free to call me there. Or my website is mblawllc.com. There's a link on there that you can schedule an appointment. So either way is great. Technology is Michael Bailey's friend. Make Michael Bailey your end-of-life attorney. Michael, thanks a lot for coming back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Michael. Oh my goodness, what a show. What a tense time in Denver, Colorado. Below the Springer and Steinberg studio, there's shouting. There are threats. Some people want to throw fuel on the fire. I want peace in America. Hopefully that will occur through the voting booth. I urge you to get involved. I'm trying to do my part. Thank you to Dr. Nedra Downing. Your courage is inspirational. John LeBoutlier, you have a valuable perspective, my friend. Michelle Malkin, thanks for coming on. I don't know why you had to run away. We need to talk about this. Can you defend the Groypers? Why do you elevate those people? I don't understand it. Thanks to my friend, Michael Bailey, for being in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. My troubadour, Dave Gunders. Wow, deep down. What a song, what a concept, deep down. I'd like to think there are more of us who are on the good guy's side and fewer selfish bastards. Join me next Saturday. It's going to be great. If you like us, please subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.